0: Happy New Year! My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my band and my music management job slowed right down. At the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform Letterboxd, so I decided to fill the gaps in my horror film knowledge. Within week one, I was averaging three films a day this podcast is the result of that horror compulsion. Welcome to A Year in Horror. Excellent.
1: Excellent. You know what the most frightening thing in the
2: world is? It's fear.
3: Every year.
0: First things first, I had two different people this last month ask me how they could support the podcast. Now, Dunk, I cannot thank you enough for this. Uh, You were incredibly generous with your donation. I don't know what to say, except you're an absolute bloody legend. Thank you so much. And Jack McGuinness, I have taken your advice and I've set up that Patreon account. I love that you appreciate the work that I put into this show. So I set up a Patreon about three years ago for another podcast and what I've done I've just swapped everything around and I've made it live for this one. So now if you wish you can donate to the show there are going to be two tiers. The first tier is a £3 tier where you can just help me keep the show running and for anyone that enjoys the show or enjoy what I do with this then that's how you can show your appreciation. There is also a £4 tier, and pretty much any contribution that you make to a year in horror will be put back into making regular, original and specialist content for you. But as well as that warm and fuzzy glow that you're going to get for helping me out and helping out the show, with the £4 tier, you're going to also have some extra content uh, and it's going to include a monthly radio show episode and some Q&A stuff and video stuff as well. Well, whatever I can think of. I'm excited about the possibilities and again, I appreciate your interest. And yeah, that's how you can support me. So it is www.patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Thanks in advance. Right. Okay. So another email came in from Jay Price. And they said about the 20s and 30s episode, the 1920s and a 1930s episode that I did a couple of months ago. They said... Uh, Why was I giving mixed messages about Boris Karloff? Um, When I was speaking to Paul about Frankenstein, I said that I wasn't really a fan of Boris Karloffs, But then um, a bit earlier on in the episode, I was saying that he was my number one player from that era. I totally understand that. And I do have the answer for you, Jay. So... With each Big Hitter episode, they are recorded over a space of a couple of months each. And then I piece it all together. And Paul's chat was the first one that I did for that episode. But it wasn't long after that conversation that I started to warm to Boris Karloff. And by the end of the recording, in fact, I was a massive fan and I still am now. Whenever he is in the cast list for a film that is on my list, I tend to watch that before any other. And I also want to just say to everyone out there... A big, fat, happy January the 1st. This is 2022. Would you believe this podcast is a year old now?
3: A whole year.
0: But for right now, you've clicked on the podcast that is about to deliver you part one of our 2004 rundown. Imagine that. 2004. And straight off the bat, I have to let you know, between you and me, 2004 was a stinker for horror. A stinker. There's a couple of classics thrown in there for sure, but there is a real lack of continuity and drive in the horror world. And we'll get to that as we make our way up the list. But what am I basing that assumption on? Let me tell you, I watched a total of 47 horror, sci-fi and fantasy movies in total for this episode. And although it was way less exciting than last month's 1982 big hitter, I will admit that it was a huge relief not to work my way through 70 films like I did for that one. That was a big job. And also, while I'm at it, thank you so much for the feedback regarding the 82 episode. I had an inkling that it would be a popular one. Everyone loves the 80s. And it was really cool to read your comments, especially from the couple of you that mentioned the quality of the guests and how much they enjoyed listening to them. It was really cool to read and really nice that you think that. So yeah, thank you so much. But for those that are new to the podcast, how do things work here? Well, I'm going to run you through it. For those new to the show, here's a quick guide to what a year in horror is all about. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random each month and I run down my personal favourite films from that year. It's an easy concept to grasp and I'm rather fortunate that all folks from all strokes always agree with my rankings all of the time. Also, if I'm covering a film that you don't like, or you don't care for, or just like to skip on, then the time codes are in the show notes. But be aware, those show notes also act as spoilers for what's coming up next and what makes my number one. And as I've already mentioned, you will notice this month, if horror in 2004 was a comedian, it would be a lot more Roy Chubby Brown than it would be James Acaster or Stuart Lee. The quality isn't quite there. The higher reaches of the also-rans are only just above average. But thankfully, out of my top 10 films, I'd say only the top 8 made it to a 7 out of 10 or above. It's a really weird year, 2004. Uh, Each episode, I am joined by a stack of guests, as you well know, and they help me wade through the most interesting films of the bunch. So today, we have podcast regulars, photographer and filmmaker, Benjamin Bowles. We have musician, Paul Chanter, uh, astronomer, Mark Canali, And as for special guests... We are joined by two premier journalists and podcasters, both Rachel Reeves and Jacob Stolworthy. They join us today Uh, and also concert promoter, musician and genre movie nutcase, Choff. He is in the House of Horror this month also. Right, my definition of horror is sometimes considered pretty wobbly for those with a far more rigid idea of what makes a horror an actual horror. And sometimes my wobbly choices, they make it to the very high reaches of a chart. So I'm going to have to say here, prepare to get proper triggered this month. This is the month that I've been dreading the most. My number one is going to cause a stink. And when you make it to the very end of this episode, I'll be picking out of a bag the next year that we're going to tackle at random. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, fair enough. I'm digging this so far, but hang on. 47 films. That isn't enough to judge a whole year in horror. Well, I'll let you know something. I actually had 53 lined up, but I couldn't source the likes of Helevator or Lizard Baby, which both seemed like quite interesting Japanese nonsense. So what I'm saying here, it isn't a truly definitive list, but there is a real good chunk of the best of what was out at the time. But maybe, maybe you want a tighter definition of how I'm going to choose these films. So here are some rules. I have to have a cut off line somewhere. So I use the scores on Letterboxd as a rough guide. So a movie needs to be looking at getting a three out of five score before I'm going to watch it. A good example here is that weirdo remake of Salem's Lot starring Rob Lowe, which scores a close but no cigar 2.7 currently on Letterboxed. Now, Salem's Lot may well have that Stephen King clout, but because there isn't an angle for me to latch onto it with, I just didn't bother. But sometimes there are exceptions to the rule, and 2004 saw the release of Dwight Little's Anaconda, The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. And that scores a terrible 2.1 on Letterboxd. But of course, I had to watch it as the first one just gave me so much pleasure. But here is the most important thing. I am simply a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I am not a horror expert. So if I miss something out that you love, let me know. And also, if you do pick up a great tip from this list, and I know you do this anyway, and I love it, email me, let me know. DM me if you want. I love the communication with you lot. So feel free to contact the podcast. You can follow me at Walla Weller, on Letterboxd and Instagram, or you can hit me up at NotWellerPod Pod on Twitter. Email is the thing I look at every single day, and I'm contactable at a year in horror at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's a review where you can say whatever you like. But then please click 5 stars. You ready? Let's do it. You wanted the worst. You've got the worst. This is the 10 worst movies from 2004. Now, as per usual, there is no doubt, I'm not doubting it, that there were worse movies than these that came out in 2004. Maybe except my number one pick. I don't know if anything could be as bad as that, but I digress. Uh, These were the worst 10 picks that I actually sat through for this episode, which includes one god-awful 1 out of 10 pick, four 2 out of 10 picks, and then five 3 out of 10 picks. It was a real ball ache. I am going to admit that. It was a real ball ache to get through this in the most part. In all honesty, I recommend that you just give this whole next lot a wide berth. Just save yourself some wasted hours. There is a couple of notable mentions, but I get it. If you want to skip this, the time codes, they're in the show notes. But be aware, you're also going to come across spoilers if you want to know what's at the top of the charts. Without any more gobbly, gobbly gook, Here we go, this is the 10 worst movies. We are of course starting at number 10. It's Monster Island. Now this is an MTV original movie. And if that doesn't make it sound amazing, I don't know what is going to make it sound amazing. But this is maybe the visually flattest film that I've ever seen. And the lead actor... Daniel Latterly, I think it's Latterley, might be Lattell. He has the most watchable face in this. It's really fucking weird. Uh, There is awful acting all round, so no one gets away with it. But this film is oddly alluring. I was sort of into it, and yet I know it's rubbish. At the ninth position for the worst film of 2004 sits The Grudge.
3: in that house I felt something was wrong what happened there
0: In this mess of a remake, Sarah Michelle Gellar, she is the star. It's notable because Takashi Shimizu, who directed the Japanese original, and I'm really sorry if I didn't pronounce that name correctly, uh, well, they also directed this American do-over. And I don't rate the original, let alone this remake. But what do I know? This almost made $190 million back on its original 10 million investment. As I said, I don't rate the original and this is equally as bad. Maybe in your ISO, it's equally as good. My number eight pick is not quite as bearable as that one, but it is starting to gain some notoriety as this underground and underseen classic. It is called R-Point. And I just want to stop this nonsense here. I have no idea why it is building up this momentum and it keeps getting mentioned in lists. Maybe it is just because there is an actual story to it and not many people have seen it. I don't know. But anyway, this is another movie filmed in the most flattest of ways. I mean, it is flat as a pancake, this one. It has the ghosts of dead soldiers that are ghosts or are they ghosts? It is from South Korea And this may well have cut the mustard in 2004, but I've seen so many more engrossing films with very similar storylines over the last few years that I just don't care about this one. At number seven is the Bill Plimpton directed animation. It's called Hair High. This is a sort of 50s pastiche where some murdered teens come back from the dead to take revenge. The animation itself is really good. It's really fantastically drawn. The voice work is also great. I think Sarah Silverman's part of the cast. And even though this one is quite fast paced and is only 78 minutes long, I got proper bored at several points. At number 6 though, in my least favourite movies from 2004, it gets even worse. We have Takashi Miike's One Missed Call. And although this did the festival rounds in 2003, it did not get a proper release anywhere until the following year. Which is why it's making my awful chart. What a lucky guy Takashi is. So this is a cell phone horror And cell phone horrors ain't my bag. The sound design, I must admit, it's very good here. And the film itself is stretched out to 112 minutes. Of course, 90 minutes would still be pushing it. This is just another boring one. And I never expect boredom from Miki. So that was well weird in the fact that it wasn't weird. At number 5, with a score of 2 out of 10, we have Nightwatch. And Nightwatch is a Russian mess. Very similar in theme to Underworld, which was released the following year. So, there was this huge anticipation for this when I first came across it, way back when it first appeared in my video shop. And that is why I clearly remember that I was so bored watching it, that I never even finished it before I returned it. Now... 17 years later I have now returned and it's really a case of style over substance this one and it's a real shame because the opening 25 minutes quite tasty also this one is so 2000s that I'm just taken out of this film ton of times purely because someone's wearing a floppy hat or some awful sunglasses some really awful style choices were being made in the early 2000s let's just say that and if you want to look at them all just watch Nightwatch. Crashing in at number four is the inconceivably incompetent. We always get one of them. It's called The Hazing. And now this gains a point for the cannolingus scene. Uh, there are some great practical effects in this bit. But there is awful writing and pathetic acting. The box on this one it says Evil Dead meets Scream. And I suggest you watch it on YouTube just like I did, and then you tell me if you can see those comparisons because my money is on. No, you cannot. At number three,
1: 1.0. Today,
3: you will find a package. You open it, there's nothing inside. There's nothing inside. There is something inside.
0: Now, I hunted out a copy of this because there was a few reviews that I found on Letterboxd that were really good. Uh, It seemed right up my alley. That plot synopsis sounded really good. So I sourced it on a DVD. Within 20 minutes of pressing play, I just wish I hadn't bothered. Another one that is just so awfully filmed. It really looks cheap. And whilst the premise of receiving these packages that you never actually ordered, it still intrigues me. There is still a really good film there. And let's admit it, since this has been made, there has been some really good films with just that premise. The execution here was close to atrocious. Number two, sees the Bleeding Awful, The Phantom of the Opera. And this one is directed by Joel Schumacher. This is the movie of the Andrew Lloyd Webber stage show and whilst all the songs and all the story beats they as recognisable as your own bloody face in the mirror I had to watch this one in three separate sittings just to make it to the end. On Letterboxd it says almost 6,000 people have given this a 9 or a 10 out of 10. But there are still just over a thousand of us that really know the score. So now, now we head over to my number one terrible pick for the worst movie of 2004. Now this wonderful accolade, it goes to Tales from the Crapper.
3: The screen sensation that everyone's been talking about has finally arrived.
1: Fucking A, bring on the
3: bitches! It's Tales from the Crapper. The first feature film shot entirely in glorious color vision. Tales from the Crapper is the inaugural film, in Troma Entertainment, and Lloyd Von Kaufman's acclaimed Dogpile 95 doctrine of digital filmmaking. Filmed in three countries over three years with six directors, 15 writers, and a cast of hundreds, Tales from the Crapper adds up to over 80 minutes of pure entertainment. Hosted by everyone. Harbinger of the horrible, the crapkeeper. Tales from the crapper. Most not one, but two. That's right. Two films in one extraordinary digital movie. What was
0: I thinking watching this? This is what it says under the word plot on Wikipedia. Troma Entertainment, co-founder and B-movie director and producer Lloyd Kaufman plays the Crapkeeper. He presents the viewers with two horror stories that contain gore, nudity, fat men, talking penises, lesbian scenes, vampires, UFOs and appearances by porn star Ron Jeremy and the band Newfound Glory. The film was purportedly shot over three years with six directors and close to 15 writers. There you go. And yet, knowing how bad that plot synopsis makes this film sound, it actually never reaches those heights. I watched this all in one sitting. Maybe it's because I just wasn't drunk enough. All I know is this. If anything is going to give my very first viewing of lesbian vampire killers a run for its money, and that's coming up, that's coming up, then it's going to be this film. This is the worst film that I've seen by far that was released in 2004. It was awful. Tales from the crapper. And there you have it. That was the 10 worst films of 2004. And let's face it, 2004 was a really crappy year to begin with. So if your film made it onto this list, then let's just hope your fortunes improved going forward. eh? Let's hope. Welcome to the only part of the also-rans. Usually, we split it into two, but there wasn't that many films to deal with this month, so yeah, it's just one section. Now, all these are the threes, fours and fives out of ten. Definitely some interesting choices, but nothing that I truly enjoyed until we get right up to the top. But I don't think I'll be coming back to any of these films... Although this section does contain three guest chats, believe it or not, there are a few fan favourites amongst this nonsense. So, you know, what do I know? So let's begin. First up is Riding the Bullet. It's a Stephen King adaptation, which in an odd way acts as comfort food for me, as do a lot of his stories that have been made into movies. My initial notes for this... Say, so many dream sequences and false start endings, this film is a fucking mess. But, here to sort me out, probably, is our first guest today. It's the wonderful Rachel Reeves, who is based in Boise, Idaho. Now, she is the co-host on the Stephen King podcast, The Losers Club, but she also writes for Dread Central, Rue Morgue, Consequence, Daily Grindhouse and many more. I follow her on Twitter and I've followed her for quite some time now. She is always a good read and you can find all the links to her work there. Right, okay, she is a horror nut and I mean who is there better to chat about this movie with? So without any more delay, this chat that I had with Rachel Reeves a month or so ago all about Stephen King and riding the bullet is now here. Enjoy it.
4: Hey, thanks
2: for the ride. Oh, not a problem, man. Where are you headed? I gotta see my mom in the hospital. What
5: is she sick?
1: I honestly don't know what I'd do if I didn't have you. For a man who never escaped his past. Nothing is more dangerous. <laughs> And his future. Feeling all right? Yeah. You sure? On the road home. (gasps) That didn't happen. A choice must be made. It's time for one of you to die. The choice is yours. A soul must be saved. Don't you want to see me before I die? And his darkest fear. Who's it gonna be? Must be faced. You have to decide now. No, Al, No! Let me out, please. Time's a wasting. Death travels fast.
0: Rachel, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to talk about all this today.
0: Well yeah I saw on your Twitter feed that you had a little read of it again last night which is super awesome.
4: Oh yeah it's it's actually perfect timing because you know the story takes place in October so it's very seasonally appropriate and it's got such a good fall vibe and it's a quick read so yeah it's always nice to revisit it this time of year.
0: And of course, we're talking about riding the bullet. But I would love people uh, that listen to the show just to know exactly what job you do. Because I've read your Twitter bio and it reads like a what what of horror. So there's so much. Uh, So yeah, uh, describe what you do and how we can find you.
4: Oh boy, I do a little bit of everything. It's actually funny. So my day job... I work at a record store, uh buyer at a record store, but on the side and in my uh, quote-unquote free time, I do a lot of freelance writing, um, especially in the horror realm. So I typically write about film scores, um, horror film scores. I do a lot of interviews with various creators, and yeah, I just, I love horror movies and writing about them any way that I can and on any site that will have me. <laughs>
0: that's brilliant so. I, I the thing I am really passionate about with the show is making sure that whenever there's a score that is worth mentioning it gets a big segment on there. Oh, good. Um, Is there anything that you've really discovered uh of recent well I'd say recent months because every year there's amazing stuff that comes out I'm always loving the scores so anything you could recommend that's come out recently oh
4: yeah sure I feel like we're in a new renaissance of film scores it's so great you know it it happens you know just like everything there's ebbs and flows but I think that there's so many interesting creative people out there and I feel like filmmakers are actually taking the time and doing their research to find interesting people that maybe aren't huge names you know like you know, you know, Brian Tyler's fantastic, but he doesn't have to do every movie. Right. So I think that, you know, a lot of people are filmmakers are taking the time. So like recently Ben Lovett had a movie. He's had a ton of movies out, but, um, he had two in particular that I really liked, um, the night house and the old ways, very different movies, very different scores, but that's kind of Ben Lovett's MO. So they're great. And, um, Let's see, I also, it's not out yet, but uh, so Drummond Lace and Ian Holtquist have a movie called Night Teeth, which comes out on October 20th on Netflix and their score for it is so fun and it's wall-to-wall music, so there's a lot of score, uh, but all of it's great. So that's just thats just two right there, but I could go on for a long time. <laughs>
0: Since It Follows, uh, when I, before that I think I was just like always looking what Mondo were bringing out wax mm-hmm. Waxwork. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's this massive explosion after it follows where I can hardly keep up with what's coming out left, right and center. And I I feel like that was my little nugget. I'll, everyone is like really into this score and then all of a sudden, and it's just been heaven.
4: Oh yeah. Heaven. No, it's, you know, you can't undersell the value of those record labels. Like it's wild. I remember, yeah, when Waxwork first put out, the reanimator soundtrack that was like the first one I bought from them and then like my first one I bought from death waltz I think was uh rosemary's baby and you know at the time there weren't a lot of labels really doing that like reissuing classic horror scores and stuff but man has it exploded just (laughs) in a relatively short period of time and yeah now before it was like you know a couple here and there and I could really easily keep up with like my collecting and stuff but man now it is like impossible it's i mean it's impossible to afford it let's just be honest like you have to make some choices (laughs) but you know we're blessed with riches right so it's it's great yeah
0: too right too right um i just want to mention to those out there if you can find the the creep show one that came out i think i think that was on
4: it's waxwork yeah and they just reissued it it came out originally if like 2015 or something i think but then yeah thank god they they reissued that because i know there's a lot of people that missed out the first time and we're very excited about that
0: i imported a load of them sold them so quick oh. and that was it gone so yeah so i just wanted to say exactly the same thing you can get it again so grab it yeah um okay end of that <laughs> sorry to go off on a tangent but yeah someone that loves scores brilliant yeah okay so Uh, We're talking about Riding a Bullet, and if you would not mind, I would love for you to give us a little synopsis of this one, which I would think is not as easy as you would first think.
4: Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's funny. So Stephen King, actually, he talks about this a lot in the introduction to his uh, short story collection called Everything's Eventual, and he describes it as just a hitchhiker who got picked up by a dead man. So that's his little synopsis. And I think that that is accurate, but also I do think that there's a lot more to it. So yeah, it's about this college student who is, uh, his mom has had a stroke and he is attempting to get to her hospital as quickly as possible by hitchhiking. And along the way he encounters, he has an experience. I don't know whether he encounters it, you know, that's up to the, your, your discretion, I guess. But he has an experience with a dead man who offers him a really difficult choice. And it's all about this kid, Alan, really confronting his mother's mortality and how he's processing that. So there's a lot more depth to it than, you know, Stephen King's little one liner. I, th- I feel like he's underselling it a little bit, but that's the general gist.
0: Love it. And yeah, <laughs> it's the thing is, I, I thought about it myself and I just thought, If you start including some of it, you can't stop because it's all so intertwined. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it's like, you're just going to read the whole book pretty much. Um, Yeah, the
4: whole 40 pages. (laughs) Well,
0: that's it. It's really short. I remember this coming out... um, on, online. so this is what I remember I remember I remember that it was like this big thing it's like this is the future of how we're going to be reading books yeah and of course Stephen King's at the forefront of it. Uh, did you remember this time? Were you excited about that?
4: You know this was just about the time that I really started getting into Stephen King and I remember it coming out. I remember it being a really big deal. so okay, I'm a little biased because my mom is a librarian. Um, and she has been a librarian for a very long time. So the fact that it was like an ebook was like, oh, what is that? So I never, I don't know, the technology was really like beyond <laughs> me. I was like, I don't want to read a book on a computer screen, you know? So I did not download it. I did not actually read it till it came out in Everything's Eventual. But that's my own bias. But I do know that, yeah, it was huge. This had this kind of thing, it's it's funny to think like had never been done and was such an interesting concept. And of course it was Stephen King to do it. Like he's one of the biggest writers ever to exist. And he's always been really open to kind of being creative with his creations and releasing them in interesting ways and taking risks. But it is also interesting that I think he didn't, while it made him a ton of money and made him even more famous I don't think he was really happy with how it all kind of turned out Um, in the same introduction he does talk about the fact that yeah he got asked to be on all these programs and he got a ton of publicity but it was all about how the book was released and not actually about the story so it was like cool yeah you liked you know, it was all about the technology and not actually what the story was about. And but I think that's understandable. You know, you put something personal out there. And if people just kind of glaze over it to talk about something else, it's like, oh, well, yeah. But what about the story? Did you like it? <laughs> so, well, the, I I, I'm much the
0: same. I didn't read it until uh, it came out on, on the... Um, what do, What do you call a book with tons of stories in...
4: Like an anthology, I guess. Like that'll do it. Or a collection, yeah. yeah.
0: But yeah, I didn't read it until it came on that, and I haven't read it since. I, I wasn't as clued up and clever as as yourself yesterday to think, oh, maybe that would help this podcast. <laughs> I don't know, but but yeah. So I haven't read it since then. So I can't really remember. I remember the beats, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it's more of me watching the movie because I find that Mick Garris's direction when he does takes a Stephen King work, he sticks pretty close to to what's actually on the page.
4: You know, he does like so Mick Garris has obviously a deep respect and love for Stephen King. And he generally does try to keep it pretty true. However, I mean this the story is only 40 pages. So okay, so how do you stretch that into an hour and a half film, right? So while a lot of it is very true, there's a lot of, you know, exact lines of dialogue pulled from the story, he does make some big changes. Um, but I think that there's room for that. I, in the, you know, in the book, it just kind of briefly touches on his dad doesn't go into any depth, whereas that's a much bigger thing in the movie. And there's some, you know, slight character things. There are some whole characters that are added, like, you know, in the, in the little novella, they, don't really talk at all about Alan's, you know, girlfriend. She's not a character. Wow. Okay. His, his roommates are just a passing mention, you know, so things like that. Um, there So there are some big changes, but it makes sense. And some scenes in the movie that don't happen in the book, but it, you know, you gotta, you gotta fill that time somehow. So I, I get that. But I do think Alan, the character is very true. I think George Staub, the character is very true. So, you know, his his motives were his motives were true, I guess. McGarris
0: do know, and I think the most common sort of thing that's known about are the difference between this and that is the car was swapped over, and it was a <laughs> in era change sort of thing. So yeah, the big that's things. right.
4: Yeah, no, the book I think it takes place in two thousand, which is when it was released, so that makes sense. But yeah, the movie takes place in nineteen sixty nine, and. I don't exactly know why. I don't know if there's actually a reason other than like maybe because there wouldn't be cell phones or something. I don't know. But I think maybe he just, Mick Garris liked the idea of that time period and the cars and the clothes and the music maybe. I don't know. I I also don't feel like he did a very good job at establishing (laughs) a believable 1969, shall we say. But that's another thing. Uh, But yeah, the story takes place in 2000. (laughs)
0: I love that. I think I, I just picture him going, right, um, how am I gonna get rid of the the friends? I know, John Lennon's about like Let's yeah. get the John Lennon concept, off they go.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Solved.
4: Yeah, <laughs> explain why they can't just give him a ride. <laughs> you
0: know. Yeah, love, love that. So Mick Garris, what do you think about his adaptations? Because he gets a lot of stick within Stephen King's circles of fandom, but at the same time, when you really dig into it, th- I'd say like when I listen to Stephen King podcasts and things like that, people love him, like absolutely love the guy, and that he doesn't get the dislike. I remember growing up when uh, what was it, The Stand? I think it was The Stand. Yeah. And one of my friends went, "Oh, but it's Mick Garris," uh, you know, and and I'm, I remember that, but it's not the case. I think over the years, and like. I remember seeing Critters 2 recently and when his name popped up in it I was like wow okay I love Critters 2 Uh, Bag of Bones was another one I watched recently Um, Mm -hmm. and one I always remember and the reason why I'm not not on this hater uh, of him boat that's not a thing but you know if there was a hating boat (laughs) Sleepwalkers for me I just can't (laughs) stop myself from watching that and loving it every time it's on so yeah Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion of this guy?
4: So it's funny. So I, I do, um, I'm one of many co-hosts for a Stephen King podcast called the Losers Club. There's, there's about 12 of us. So there's a lot of us, but yeah, we, there is a real love for Mick Garris and, you know, my friends on that, they've talked about this depth in deep depth over the years for a lot of his adaptations. And I think what it is, is that he has such a reverence for Stephen King's ideas and his words and his stories. And he is one of those directors who's going to do the best to honor those stories. Like he's not going to come in and make a lot of big sweeping changes. Like, like in this one, he adds to it. I don't think he actually takes away much, if that makes sense. And it's the same thing with a lot of his other ones, like his shining, miniseries that he did or um is a more true adaptation of the book The Shining than Stanley Kruberg's. Um and the same thing with the stand, like a lot of people have a lot of love for that series because it brought these characters to life in this really beloved book. And he it was very authentic feeling. However, Mick Garris's <laughs> execution sometimes leaves a bit to be desired but i don't know if you can i don't know i have a hard time faulting him for that because it's you know budgets are a thing and sure. he's got his own style and it is his own style you can definitely see his vision if you watch a lot of his adaptations it's like oh this feels like a mick garris production you know take that as you will but i i think his heart's in the right place and i feel like a lot of genuine constant readers understand that so how can you how can you hate him for that i don't know i have a hard time hating him because of that
0: yeah uh, the stand is so huge and so expansive and the budget was so limited what mm-hmm. else could you have done with that than he actually produced like he brought us fans something yeah. that you know is in my collection right now you know and i can pull out anytime and I love watching it. Um It's not just nostalgia, I, you know. There are great bits of all his films to take out of it. Even this one, which I uh, for cards on a table, I'm not a fan of this one. Um, <laughs> so I can't wait to get into that. Actually, well, let's begin. So, pretty much, what I'm going to ask you is various points of it, and these are all points I'm not too keen on. But I just wondered, being such an uber fan yourself, like how you feel about it. So we're gonna. Kick off with Jonathan Jackson.
6: Sure.
0: Yeah, playing Alan Parker. For me, I only knew him as uh, Kyle on the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So I remember yeah. him from that, and I I remember it, that character was allowed to flesh out. Obviously, a TV series, you got more episodes to like deal with it, and I think he'd done a pretty good job of being quite aloof at the beginning, but by the end, I was thought maybe he's a bit all over the place. Uh, but then maybe the script called for that. So yeah, how, how do you feel about him?
4: You know, I, I, there's a lot of things I like about him. I think his age is great. I think his, you know, his look is great. I think his general execution and delivery is great. I do think that a lot of it is the material he was given. I feel like they make him really kind of, you know a little bit more depressed and mopey than he is in the book like I think in the book he's really contemplating some deep issues and like struggling you know with his his mom you know reaching this point in her life and having these like health issues and her you know her imminent death but um I feel like in the in the movie he's a little he's a little emo a little bit (laughs) you know and yeah, I, I don't know that I like how the, his inner dialogue is executed with like a literal manifestation of himself talking to himself, you know, I'm not sure I really enjoy that or think that it's wholly necessary. I guess more of the story, I feel like more of the issues I have with his character have to do with the actual, you know, script and how he was directed versus his performance. I guess. Well,
0: it, he's shown that he he's a great actor, so you know th- th- there is that. Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> I love that he said it's emo, because in my notes I wrote this is some at some points. It's very um, my so called life. You know, it's very yeah. It's very taken from that era and plonked into the sixties. So yeah, uh, agreed. One thing that I really loved and I completely forget until I actually watch the film again is. David Arquette's performance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I forget how batshit he is every time it comes on.
4: So I love David Arquette in this. I think that he is the highlight of the film uh, in a couple of different ways. Just his performance is great. I also think that his star power was a huge asset to this film because this you know, came out in 2004. And by this point, he'd done three Scream movies. Like he was, wow. you know, really... He'd been famous for a while, but I feel like this was a really good point in his career. So to have him signed on to this project, you know, it was a big name to have on it, honestly, I think. And so, you know, I think he looks great. I love the degrading makeup effects that they do with Greg Nicotero, I believe. And, you know, Greg Nicotero is huge, Walking Dead, like every creep show, everything. Yeah, I think he fits the general description of George in the novella. He is a little cheesier, maybe. I feel like he's a bit more menacing and spooky in the novella, whereas, you know, the delivery and the way that David Arquette delivers some of the lines it feels a little campy but then again the whole movie does so I'm not sure he's not quite as scary but I still love him I still think it's fun
0: (laughs) yeah well that's a great thing about Mick Garris movies is that they are like a big bag of chips uh, you know uh, beer friends around like you're going to enjoy this Like settle down for an hour and a half whereas you know it's not like watching The Shining where you don't want to be watching that with, uh, with all your friends. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Or it's not like, you know, if Mike Flanagan directed the story, it would be a completely different thing. It would be a very intense overwrought, you know, not in a bad way, but just exploration of grief and mortality and just a really filled with existential dread kind of thing. And, you know, with, David Arquette and Mick Garris combined, you get something that's a little bit more lighthearted and fun and not so, not so serious, I guess.
0: Yeah. He is what I take away from this film as a major plus. And it is the reason why, even though I do rate it quite low uh, amongst all the, the Stephen King adaptations, I'm always going to come back to this one. When I bought it recently, I was just like, why is this not already in my collection? Like just for that 20-minute segment. I love that. I love that. Um, Right, but a major problem for me, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think I have bought it, is all these dream sequences (laughs) and all these flashbacks. And like, there are so many films that do it so, so well. And then then we have this one, and I found it a real problem. Uh, I was speaking to a friend. Who said no, that makes the movie. Where do you stand on it?
4: I okay. I don't I don't have so many problems with how it's done. I feel like I have a problem with how many there are. Yes. Like it's not, there's just there's and, and not even just the dream sequences. Like, there's a lot of fake outs, or I guess they're dream sequences. It's like he zones out for a sec, but there's so yes. many of them, and it's like. I feel like that kind of undermines the the scarier moments and it undermines kind of just the emotions that Alan is going through by having so many of them, because it like takes away, you don't know what to believe. And then when something does happen, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't, I don't like them necessarily. I, yeah but it's just because the sheer number of them
0: <laughs> so many like that must have been uh in the script from the beginning like there, there's no way you can just like uh, do this sort of thing on the fly the amount yeah. of preparation that goes into this and at no point did they go do you know what let's just combine a couple maybe you know <laughs> No yeah. point. Uh, and, and I think it makes for a real uneven viewing yeah. as I say you can take great sequences from it like my favorite on this last watch was queuing up for the for the the ride uh, mm-hmm. itself i love that scene uh, and when he bottles it at the last moment like that really sticks with me because that means so much it, you know there's multi-layers going on there and then you can just add five sequences of uh, like a flashback in a two minutes segment of the film and I'm, I'm getting confused why are you doing this
4: I feel in this, I think this is something I don't necessarily like that they added to the character is just Alan's general fixation with death, like before his mom has this, you know, has this stroke. Because I feel like I don't feel like that element is really in the novella. I think in the novella, like Alan's a pretty average, even keel kind of guy who's just-I mean, everybody goes through this, right? Everybody sees you know, somebody they love going through something difficult and having to confront those emotions that like, they're not always going to be here. And like, how do I feel about that? And like, what that means to me. And by having him already kind of prefixated on that stuff, it kind of that other layer gets lost, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these sequences where, you know, he's imagining the worst case scenarios of things happening, and it's kind of, I don't know, it feels a little unnecessary.
0: A little bit clunky is what I wrote in my notes there. A yeah. little bit clunky. Yeah. Um, I, I remember watching uh, Pet Cemetery a few months back now, and I remember loving the flashbacks there with Zelda um, mm. uh, just to put mm-hmm. another uh, Stephen King title in the mix. And they've kept it really simple, only happens a couple of times. Uh, to massive effect to massive effect and it's so so simple to do it like there are films like you got nightmare on elm street you've got jacob Slatter perhaps that are sort of expertly done in this way and i I feel like they're they're almost one-offs uh, yeah but it could still be done a, a bit better and i feel like maybe that's where like the uh, why stephen king fans tend to rate this one quite low in the mix which I'm interested to see where you put it. So <laughs> yeah. here we go. Um, amongst the plethora of Stephen King adaptations, where would you stick this? Whereabouts does it fit?
4: Oh, oh boy. I mean, if I'm looking <laughs> at it objectively, it is quite low. And it's not that it's not fun. It's not that I don't enjoy watching it. Like I've seen this, you know, a decent amount of times over the years. But then again, it's up against some pretty serious contenders, right? I mean, Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, Christine, even recent ones, you know, Doctor Sleep and uh, Shawshank Redemption and Misery. And (laughs) it's like, how can you compare this to any of those? (laughs) Like very different. But even films like Firestarter or Cat's Eye, like I think are actually better films. So I don't know it's hard it's definitely towards the bottom but I I don't hate it it's just there's a lot of really good Stephen King adaptations so sorry
0: where do you this is completely random I'm just gonna ask you um where do you stand on the Langoliers
4: Oh, okay. So that one's also probably down there. <laughs> I I don't. Yeah, I don't know. There's yeah. There's some projects. It's not like it's not at the bottom. I also don't think you know. There's it's it has plenty of company down there. Let's just say that there's there's yeah. There's plenty of other series and things that I don't really quite like very much either so it's not like it's alone down there.
0: I don't want to get you fired from your Stephen King podcast. (laughs) Stop it. You know there's
4: nothing wrong with being a fan of somebody and a fan of something and still like being able to admit that like you know they have flaws and I feel that way about Stephen King and a lot of his projects it doesn't mean I don't love him it doesn't mean I don't love a lot of these things but I I don't have to have rose-colored glasses on either right it's okay to admit that like there something's not perfect because none of us are and that's fine <laughs>
0: so it is very true I mean it's like bands and your favorite albums from those bands and yeah. like, there's always a stinker there's always a stinker
4: yeah, you can still love that band. Like, I mean, I, I was a huge Green Day fan for a very long time. Does that mean I love all their new stuff? Not necessarily, but it doesn't take away from the memories and the love I have for the albums that I do love. So, yeah, it's okay.
0: Too right, too right. Okay, we are um gonna end now. I just want to thank you so much for taking part. Here we go. Sure. So, Rachel Hell Fest. Uh, I Mm -hmm. sent you this uh, so I hope you had a little think about it so you are going to be curating now your own festival you've got two other movies to run with Riding the Bullet now what two other movies are going to fit with that?
4: Sure so I'm going to keep in the Stephen King adaptation theme and go with uh, Christine because (laughs) Christine's in this movie (laughs) so I mean (laughs) that's George's car you know Mick couldn't resist to shove Christine in there as well. Uh, So Christine and um, another car movie would be Sometimes They Come Back. I think that that also has a similar tone and a lot of fun. But then you get Christine in there, which is, in my opinion, a perfect film. So, you know, a little quality and a little camp.
0: (laughs) I've never said it's the one uh, adaptation I've never seen. Um, Okay. Which one? Sometimes They Come Back.
4: yeah Yeah. no that one's fun too so i i do rate it above this one but i wouldn't say that it's very far above it but yeah check it out for sure
0: (laughs) okay well rachel thank you so much
4: you're so welcome thank you
0: massive thank you to rachel reeves there for chatting all about riding the bullet with me but this is the also rans. we are still here so moving on what do we have next well we've got anacondas the hunt for the blood orchid so with this one it's sort of similar to when alien went to aliens anaconda went to anacondas Pretty much all I can say is there are more of these CGI snakes and it's a little yawn inducing in places but the treacherous Dr Jack Byron played by Matthew Marsden is at least good value. Following this we've got Van Helsing. So it was 2004, the summer blockbuster season, prime time for this film and here Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale take on early 2000s computer graphics in a battle to the death, and they lose. Almost every scene takes me out of the film, if that's even possible, it is, trust me, this film is horrible. Talking about computer graphics, next up is Resident Evil Apocalypse. Now this one is the second in its huge money making zombie franchise and I must admit because I have no link to the computer games I have to take these movies just simply at face value. And I mean it's shit of course but it's sort of also alright. I had to contact someone with a little bit more experience in the game side of things than me so of course whom am I going to contact? I'm going to contact my old faithful buddy, the one, the only the Mark Canali, And we got the lowdown on this huge part of horror, Resident Evil. This franchise and this film itself is more than just the sum of its parts, but why? Let's dig into this chat and see if we get any answers.
1: Imagine a world where you can reverse the effects of age, stress and sun. From the leading name in biotechnology comes Regenerate. Another breakthrough from the Umbrella Corporation, which generates revolutionary T-cell formula, actually brings dead cells back to life. Now, your youthful beauty can last forever. Always consult your doctor before starting treatment. Some side effects may occur. Regenerate is a registered trademark of the Umbrella Corporation. Our business is life itself.
0: (laughs) Hi Mark, how are
6: you doing? Hello Paul, I'm fine. How are you doing Paul? You sound wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm all good. COVID can't defeat me.
6: You're like the nemesis in Resident Evil. Yeah, oh, <laughs> think can stop you. Don't
0: already go on about the nemesis. <laughs> we'll we'll get there. Um, so yeah, we brought you in to the show this month, and as we just said, like 2004, not a great year. So we're gonna go about Resident Evil in a, in a different way. I'm gonna talk about it in general, uh, in general sort of chit chat way. But I do have a couple of questions about Apocalypse if you don't mind, once we get there. (laughs) We're gonna talk about gaming, first of all. My only experience personally with horror gaming is in the first few weeks where Resident Evil came out, the very first one, uh, on a very old PlayStation, I think it was many moons ago, might have been an Xbox, can't remember which, but I played it. I couldn't get on with the controls, dumped it. And the only other thing that I've even got close to is Friday the 13th, the game, watching people play that online.
3: Which, no, was, yeah. which was which um, was
0: fun for twenty minutes to watch people hack and slash each other up. That was good fun. <laughs> exactly. um, but like, well, as soon as I mentioned this to you, you were like, well, "Gaming,
6: yeah, like well, I, I love." Well, yeah, that. that's well, that. Yeah, so so Resident Evil. Well, I actually missed the first one. Um, going back to when they originally came out, I missed the first one because I'd been a big. Gamer in terms of you know back in the sort of Spectrum days, back in the eighties, and what happened was I I got a PC back in the days when oh you know wow I got I got one built for me you know it was like kind of like oh you know because you know I wasn't going to go out and spend five grand on something that you know (laughs) gaming PC yeah they didn't have gaming PCs in those (laughs) days there's no such thing. Yeah, I got I got one literally built sort of by some guy that just did them. I, I just plunked the bits together and, it yeah, and, and, you know, you plugged it into your telephone thing and it made all the beeps and that was it. And so I had a PC and suddenly it was like, oh, you can play games on them. So it wasn't just a case of looking on the internet, at, you know, oh, wow, you know, I can access pool really easily. It was now kind of, you know, I could do something else with it as well. So I, um, I remember I got a, a gaming magazine, and it had a disc on the front, and this was a disc of like a pre-release Resident Evil 2, sort of like wow. it was like the first sort of 10 minutes of the game you could play, and you just popped it in your PC and you played it. It was pretty, probably probably one of the first PC games I'd actually played, maybe not maybe the first PC game I played, and it absolutely, this first 10-15 sort of minutes of this game knocked me out, because it was literally, it had the feel of... Of a, of a romero zombie sort of film it had that feel and it had the idea of like using sort of static shots so you were walking through these shots that had been sort of placed like a camera a static camera and you would have to walk your character through it rather than the idea of it being you know, a camera following the character or you know what you were used to pov stuff and you getting like doom or something like that you know it was it was it felt cinematic and you know the, the sound effects and everything you know had this great sort of brilliant sound effects and it was, it was it completely knocked me out because it was like you know this was you know one of my favorite film series was being replicated in a game and I as soon as you know Resident Evil 2 came out I got a hold of it and that was kind of it played that game to death, just absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. The bits with the dogs, the bits with the birds through the <laughs> windows, the liquors. It was like it was just I just loved it. I loved it. You're saying you couldn't get the controls. Yeah. And yeah I kind of loved that part of it. I loved the idea that it wasn't trying to be really dynamic. It was, it was trying to be cinematic. And I just thought, I'm in a film. I'm in one of these films, this is as close as I'm going to, you know, this was like, you know, back in the day, this was like, oh my God, this is like virtual reality. I almost in the game. (laughs) Now you think, oh my God. So yeah, I I love that game. Resident Evil 3 came out, which is obviously going to be relevant in terms of this. By the time Resident Evil 3, I got around to getting that, yeah, I had a PlayStation and suddenly it was, yeah, I got it on the PlayStation and it felt a bit like a retread of, re to a bit but I kind of you know I kind of liked it enjoyed it the nemesis thing was quite a nice sort of hook but I never really kind of loved it again but I've always kind of really loved the games and played a few more of them so yeah that's where I'm coming into it with the gaming kind of thing because when these films came out in the early 2000s it was a good few years after the the, the games had come out so these films kind of were clearly I Aiming mean, at uh, this kind of audience of the the big game, you know this big gaming yeah. audience that got into it, and, and so the, the the first game, the first film in this sort of series, huge excitement in that kind of idea. I mean, it was like properly like amongst a certain kind of people, you you just like well hold on a minute, and it's got what who Milia in it. Well, she was like amazing in the fifth element you know this, right. this is good you know he looks you know the, the posters come out you're like okay yeah i'm starting you know get, this is this looks good and the, the first sort of scenes play out and you're in the, the mansion and stuff like that and you see oh okay this is interesting they're kind of fit and then it suddenly like changed completely and the first film kind of digressed so far from what any of the games were kind of like Oh, but you almost felt, well, sort of. I mean, it still had the elements of the hive and stuff like that was part of the games and that. But it was a good film. It was fine. I think in terms of the games, you always felt it kind of, it never really sort of spoke... To the, the, you know, in the same way that you wanted it to, because you wanted it to sort of reflect. You, you wanted a Romero esque kind of film that had more of that kind of sci fi ish element to it, maybe a yeah. bit more of the the sort of game ish kind of thing. And it didn't. So again, but you know, it's good. So the second one comes along, which we're about to talk about. And we, you watch the trailer again, you think, okay, you know, the first one was pretty good. Second one comes out, suddenly you're like, hold on a minute, Nemesis, Joel Valentine hold on a minute, this is is Resident Evil 3, this is like, you know, you're seeing some of the costumes and stuff like that. You're like, I'm legit excited now, this is is it. And then you can see it. Yeah,
0: do you know what? I, I feel like it's the equivalent of people, because I'm not a gamer, it's the equivalent of people getting excited about Pirates of the Caribbean because they love the ride and they love Disney so much. And it's that sort of thing for me like when you come to like resident evil five six or whatever it would be now is there anything left in it do you still what make sure you've watched that
6: i've watched all of them pretty much as soon as they were available i've been not going to the cinema i have to admit the only ones i think i saw in the cinema was maybe this one and i think the next one i think yeah i think two and three were the only ones i saw in the cinema but no, I've watched all of them because I think it's one of those sort of film series that you kind of feel well, you know, you've almost you've almost committed yourself to it almost in some sort of way, haven't you? It's it's like it, it really does take you on a bit of a dive. Um, you know, sometimes these film series a bit, I suppose, a bit like the Friday the Thirteenth series as much as anything. I think one of probably one of the, maybe Halloween, maybe, but I'm not entirely sure Halloween does do it. Friday the 13th does have that feel where it really sort of takes you from a kind of a middle ground, takes you down and then a bit further down. What? And then occasionally, and then occasionally, how dare you? Allows you to just pop your head off and then brings you back down again. Wow. I mean, come on! That's, I mean, it does. I mean, it's it's <laughs> none of them are ever like going to. I mean, even this sort of chat we're going to have is by no. I am not going to be sitting here trying to convince everyone, anyone, that this is a good film. I'm genuinely not. This is it's not a good film. I'm not going to claim it is a good film. I'm not going to try and convince anyone it's a good film. I just kind of like it. I just kind of enjoy it probably more than I should do, and that's what I mean. Friday the Thirteenth films. None of them, I don't think, I've ever actually reached a level where you would sit there and say, no, this is legitimately a you know a quality piece of filmmaking." <laughs> but at the same time, there are certain moments in it where you're just going to sit there and say, "Do you know why?" Actually, at the end of that, that was alright. <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> now I'm going to go and have a bath for a shower, you know, and wash this shit off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think. I think I'm with you because I, w- I watched a lot of them in a three-week period with my daughter oh my who'd not seen them before. So it was really good watching uh, someone that's well into like Marvel stuff, like just getting into horror, even though it's this skew if way of doing it. I yeah. loved that. And um, my issue with it is that now, because I saw them so close together, I have no idea what was in what film. And I have no idea. So I read through the the plot synopsis and I thought, but still, I'm pretty much the same. So I had to watch the bloody thing again. And now, now I know I can talk about it. I only want to know what is the worst bits and the best bits. So I made notes. But
6: I know. This is this is the thing. It's like the worst bits and the best bits. Okay. I, think should, I, mean, I think we should begin at the worst. Yeah, well, I was going to say that will that certainly be the longer talk, won't it? I mean, <sighs> the, the worst bits... <laughs> All right, the worst bits. I mean, I I want to kind of contextualise it a little bit because we were mentioning beforehand that 2004, and and let's be honest, a couple of years either side of 2004, I would say as well, and not peak horror, or any really Hmm. movie, you know, film was going through a bit of a sort of weird, I, I think a kind of weird, scene at the time it was you know cg was becoming so prevalent and everything it's almost as if hollywood in particular had kind of decided that what we were going to do is essentially try and make movies that, that were kind of game cut scenes and that, that was the way to go and what you know what we could now do is just forget all about the using sets and all the rest of it yes. what we could do is just basically get people on sort of wires fling them around you know, dress them in ludicrous costumes and then we can just make shit happen behind them. You know, that's going to look really awesome. And everyone's going to get absolutely knocked out by it. Because, you know, this is this. is it. Citizen Kane, who cares? You know, you're just going to be like, <laughs> going, oh, this is amazing. Look at that. That whole building just, blew, you know, it's like <laughs> and what they didn't realise was they actually just looked shit and it just looked shit from word go, and <laughs> it was like, and, and for some reason, they didn't try and sort of go, whoa, 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 hold back, let's pull back, let's pull back a little bit, clearly this isn't working, what they decided to do was, now, I think what the problem is, we haven't got enough of it, so what we should really do is just put more of it in, and what eventually will happen is people will forget what actually, you know, what reality looks like, and they'll just think that, <laughs> for some reason <laughs> gravity seems to work like this and everyone will forget It's as, as if they kind of yeah. thought the matrix i bet it was the matrix thinking about it 99 they probably thought oh everyone looked at the matrix and just thought there you go you know the, the matrix just looked so real they actually thought what they could do is just make the matrix kind of real on a screen and we'd all just kind of like go oh i believe that
3: uh-huh.
6: yeah that's that's reality and then and then it's, it's just I don't know. I could. I can't get my head around what made them do it. And you look at some of the other films, Van Helsing and stuff like that, and these these films are like. I mean, what what possessed people to sort of sit and think? I don't know. You know, we don't. You know, we'll just we'll just get some people wandering around saying shit, and then we'll just chuck a load of images in the background, and it will look really awesome.
0: You know why? And and it's purely because a film like Van Helsing. Like, was made huge bums on uh, bums on seats, like, did masses they, of people going to see these things. Did they honestly,
6: seriously? But the, the thing is, then clearly, those people aren't admitting it because I don't think I've ever met anyone that's actually claimed to have <laughs> seen it in the cinema or anything like that.
0: I was the
6: maybe there was no choice. I'm shocking, shocking. <laughs> well, yeah, so in a, in a context, what we're saying is we're setting the bar already you know, a low, low, low point where we can actually say The Butterfly Effect is one of the better films that was made that year. Crazy. You know, we can sit in that kind of sort of idea where that is going to be one of our high watermarks. You know, Resident Evil Apocalypse really isn't, like, one of the, I mean, the hate it gets online. And I, I I literally ran through some of the reviews on Letterboxd just because... It's it's almost sort of fun just going through the the the, the 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 bile, the bile that's out there. I mean, it's it's quite incredible. The, the you know, literally, I think somebody one of the the, the reviews, and just just it was like, this film was made by literal infants. Is the the line at the top of the. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like, no, it wasn't actually made by children.
0: <laughs> literal, <laughs>
6: literal infants.
4: infants. <laughs>
6: it's just people's hate for it. It's almost like some of the sort of talk about the direction and the editing and stuff like that. And and the direction and editing is clearly not great. I, I understand that completely. I haven't done any research on this. I haven't looked anything up. I've got no notes or anything like that really? because why why would i want to spend any time well <laughs> all i did was look up the director just to see who he was and what he'd done and, and this is it essentially he did this and love the, it the poor, the poor sod then just obviously got like kicked out of every meeting he ever went to afterwards i almost feel sorry for him <laughs> yeah i mean it's the worst bits okay the worst bits um I think probably the worst bit is it's so not scary. I think is probably the the main thing. It's it's you know it's it's probably one of the least scary films I've ever seen ever. I mean you know, Pixar films are more scary than this. I mean, I, I mean that, you know, genuinely they are. You know it's like yeah. there's nothing about it. The way the zombies are depicted and you know that that kind of weird. I don't even know, that sort of motion blur type slow frame rate thing. It, 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 I mean, where the first film, the zombies weren't exactly terrifying, weren't exactly amazing. He's almost sort of like basically got rid of any the point of even, you can't even see them half the time. It's just, and it's just all this weird cutting. What are they doing? Where are they? What is, I don't even know what they are. And then Nemesis isn't really a particularly scary kind of, bad guy in that sense I don't actually mind him in terms of the costume and all the rest of it but it's more kind of fun than anything else yeah it's a massive mutant dude with a rocket launcher I mean you know what's not to sort of you know it could have been
0: completely CG couldn't he Nemesis could have been just this CG mess and at least they didn't do that exactly
6: and you know credit to what that's that's, give him a couple of stars for that you know (laughs) I mean it's not scary and it's kind of funny but uh, yeah and I mean so so I think it's not scary uh, I, I have to say in context I think now it's it's now more, far more deeply sexist and racist than I ever thought it was originally, <laughs> which, which is perhaps more, you know, uncomfortable in my sense of things. Like I did things. You know, the, the black guy playing this sort of comic relief character now sort of seems like really, uh, okay, yeah. that's not good. Very <laughs> you know, much GTA, a product I'm, of its
0: time, which <laughs> always surprises me how when we say like, oh, that's very much a product of its time or that was a different time when that happened. As I go through these years, the, like, the, the gap to now is really short like, when these things changed. It's crazy. I know.
6: I know. Um, yeah, so I guess there's that idea as well. Yeah, so taking the elements of the game, and so, as I was saying, getting really excited about the idea of this being much more like the, the game, so they'd start bringing the, the sort of characters in, Joe Valentine, and stuff like that, and they put them in the costumes, although they didn't actually put Joel Valentine in the main costume because that was technically just a police costume and they could have done, but no, they put it in the special hidden costume mm-hmm. that you unlocked that was, you know, sexy costumes. Sexy
0: costume. But
6: anyway, you know, fair enough. At least they did that. That's fair enough. So, yes, there's, there's elements of that, but they don't actually do it any kind of justice. It's not really based on anything to do with the games in that sense either. So... So there is that and that was always disappointing at the time. I remember sort of thinking, OK, so actually what you've really done is just kind of kind of done what the first film did, which is all use the Resident Evil name, call it Raccoon City and then put some people in some costumes. And that's about it. That's the kind yeah. of fan service, you know, there's a liquor in there. The dogs are in there, which is nice. There's the you know, there's the nemesis. So you do have that kind of idea of the, the games and stuff, but it never really means anything in that sense. Uh, OK, uh, other bad things. Yeah, the direction and the editing, the, the, the great early 2000s color tinting thing, which I can probably say that is probably one of my most sort of favorite things that is never going to be done ever again, hopefully hopefully we will never have that kind of oh i tell you what let's reduce every color in this film down to a shade of blue it's just utterly bizarre it's like, i don't know where people thought this was like again this early 2000s thing it's like i mean underworld i actually really like underworld as a film but my god it's like well, if you just wanted to film it in black and white just film it in black and white you know it's yeah. like why do you, why do you want to reduce every the, everything dynamic in a cinema in a film down to tints of blue? It,
0: it's a choice. I mean, there there is that. At least they've made that choice and they've stuck with it. You know, maybe it's not pleasing now. Was it pleasing then?
3: <laughs> no,
6: it's like I'm saying. It's the CG thing. It's as if like people sort of. I don't know. Maybe as audio, as you say, maybe as audiences, we didn't kind of vote with our feet enough. Like so, but. Surely they heard people talking. I mean, reviewers would have said all this stuff. I mean, I don't know. The colour tinting thing never seemed to get mentioned. It just drove me King mental. Ultimately, it just, I I would, you know, it it was just, I I didn't quite, I just didn't get it. And it just really wound me up because I just love film so much that I thought, why are you destroying one of the things that makes film really good? It's this idea of using colour in film, you know, it's like, you know, if you just want to make something in black and white, just make it in black and white. Fine, I get that. But don't try and so don't bring colours down so they just feel <laughs> yeah. I get know, it. So they just feel like, like they, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Sorry. Bug <laughs> Yeah. It's dark. So I, I like that. I like that.
0: <laughs> like for me, and one of the things that is sort of like a great thing and also such a shit thing is that this the whole film seems to be centered around getting alice against nemesis it's like as a one-on-one battle and like for for someone that isn't um computer game savvy it seems like well that would be your end contest and it doesn't happen at the very end of the film which watching it now it's just like well i don't get the reference was there a big big one-off battle at the end of a game or something but it just seems like this whole film is set up to get them two together to have this fight
6: yeah no i mean in the games yes generally it wasn't always an emesis i don't think it was an emesis in in the game i think but there's Usually within Resident Evil, there was always a big bad at the end kind of There'd be twists and turns along the way, so you'd think you'd beat the big bad, and then you'd actually come across the really big bad, that kind of thing. That's fairly sort of standard stuff with it. And I think, yes, because I think one of the things that this film, and and maybe the first one, they kind of had planned in, in terms of they were hoping it would do well and all the rest of it, is just they wanted to build this idea of the conspiracy. They wanted to build up the idea that... Which is a good idea. It isn't, well, it is in the games that the point isn't so much that the bad guys are the zombies, the beasts, all this sort of thing. What the, the whole point of really the games are is it was talking about the idea of this sort of capitalists' sort of psychosis of of the idea of you know biochemical and biomedical sort of experimentation and forgetting the idea of why why you would be doing things. And a fairly standard sort of sci-fi horror type trope of, of science gone mad. You know, this idea of, you know, scientists becoming so obsessed that they forget, you know, what they're actually doing things yeah. for and they lose control. And uh, just becoming obsessive and, and sort of it, it going wrong and obviously escaping and suddenly yeah, a fairly sort of standard science sort of horror trope. Um, Kind of thing, and I I don't really know what the films were trying to sort of say. To be honest with you, I mean, in the games it was more a medical thing, and it was more a sort of science thing. And the the films, it seems to be more sort of, I don't even know, are they supposed to be kind of some sort of like weird, just supposed to be like Amazon, but you know, giving people drugs?
0: I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, that's what I picked up. That it's this this huge evil corporate giant. That, that just wants more, 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 and they've lost control. Yeah. Like that—that—that's it, and that's what it represented to me. It could have been, could have been yeah. representing Amazon or, or or anybody.
6: Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, but yeah, obviously not selling nappies, but selling, you know. I presume the, the T virus and all the rest of it being being that kind of cure all drug idea and, and sort of them hopefully selling it. And then it turns out it's not. So they want to use it as a weapon. I think that was, you know, the basic yeah. kind of idea, but but so. I guess that that's what they were kind of doing, And I suppose that's kind of where it leads to some of the good parts. I did like the idea of this idea of Raccoon City being just a... City. It's a bit of a weird idea, but this idea of a city that's just being controlled by this one corporation, this one idea, that, you know, this idea that the city is literally ran by it almost completely. I also love the idea that they have a wall around the city. Like, nobody really noticed that there's this massive secure wall thing with, like, a gate, and that was it. People were just driving in and out of this, thinking, "elder, why is there a massive wall around this entire city? What are they actually? What, what are they keeping in, or are they keeping out? I don't really quite." Know.
0: I like that though, as a, and especially as it's not announced as to to what that is. Uh, you know, exactly. I, I quite like that. You know, we can gather. You know, we're we're all not idiots watching it. Um, I, I I love that they at the same time as painting us as idiots when we're watching it like like they're doing those things where they can say well actually you're an idiot you don't need explaining the, what, what that is and that's an excuse i think they could use throughout this film
6: like a good nerd that what you should be doing is filling in the backstory with your fan fiction right you should be sort of sitting there going right okay well the reason is that raccoon city essentially everyone that lives in raccoon city is employed by umbrella right so they probably all work in the hive or at least somebody they know is working in the hive and yes there's a city then built around it because people need to live and sort of work and there's shops and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. that seems a fairly excessive thing for just one like you know so research establishment that would be an entire city of infrastructure required for it. But okay, you know, we can go with that. We can get
3: that.
6: <laughs> so but we're starting to move into the stuff that's actually kind of good. so Yeah,
0: great. Great. I'm I'm glad about that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what chilled me out when I when I was getting annoyed with it. And it was pretty early on I was getting annoyed with it. But when Alice Goes through that church window on a motorbike, and you know lands in the coolest fashion. It's like, well, I'm just going to crack open a beer here and just going to sit back because this is just meant to be ridiculously yep. stupid fun, and it is
6: <laughs> exactly now. Then now you're talking because th- this was, you know, this was going to be the, the sort of the main redeeming factor is is Alice Abernethy, which is like you know that this this character. And, and I will sit and I will swear that this was for a couple of years during that early sort of millennium period, just was the coolest character in my like, film. You know, I would say the sort of the second and third um, Resident Evil films, I would just say, just, they, we didn't have a character like that, particularly a sort of female character like that. I'm pretty sure, I, I can't remember. Anyway, this was before the sort of Marvel universe had kicked in and they were really starting to sort of figure out these sort of characters And before we had Black Widows and stuff like that doing anything. It just didn't have that kind of female superhero character. And the first film had kind of painted her as being this sort of, it was kind of stuttered, wasn't it? She was kind of almost the, she was just going kind to of being dragged along, you know, sort of, just, you know, all these sort of the military guys were all in there and she was just constantly being like kind of watching from the sidelines and it just felt, and then there was a the kind of bit where you like, ah, hold on, no, she's actually, She trained, she kicked the dog. Okay. So this is quite cool, right? But it never really sort of kicked in. You never like thought, okay, no, she's she's good. The point being that when you realize in this second one, all of a sudden, what she's just been injected with this virus kind of thing and suddenly everything's been unlocked. It's this kind of magical thing where suddenly she is totally kick-ass. And I mean, in every kind of way, she is a superhero. She's Captain America kind of thing. You know, it's like she's almost untouchable, you know, almost unbreakable. And it was just such a, I can't say how just how cool that was. I felt at the time, you know, not just from me. From,
0: what were you into Tomb Raider at that time? Because that was just around the same point.
6: It kind of had that feel. I agree with you with that. The problem with that was I wasn't hugely into the games. Um Again, mainly because I'd kind of missed them when they were first sort of coming out. And then um, when I kind of watched it, I was never hugely convinced with Angelina Jolie as as the character. I never kind of felt convinced that she had that kind of feel about her. And also, she wasn't really... uh, she was supposed to just be really good she, she she was a bit kind of black widow if you think about it she didn't have that kind of superhero kind of element to her in terms of she wasn't powered by anything she wasn't powered by some sort of drugs or you know some radiation this kind of idea of being or, or she was some sort of god or anything like that she was just really good at doing stuff which is cool and i, I kind of get it but i don't think it ever really came across that she was anything better She was anything more than that this kind of felt more like oh shit you know no this is like you know the apocalypse well yeah it's probably because millie is is bringing the fucking apocalypse right it's like you know she walks into the room and it's like oh shit you know, what's she gonna do she's gonna bring the, the entire building down or something just to just to destroy whatever's in there it was just really good and as you said that moment because you get that feeling at the beginning that shit's gonna kick off when she does that it is it's just such a good moment in that sense of like yes (laughs) that's the character we want right that's what we want to
1: see
3: there we go
0: i love mr mark canali what a legend you know he's an astronomer you know that but that's enough resident evil i've had enough of it We are now going to hit up my number 19 spot in my 2004 list, and it is The Toolbox Murders. And this is a Toby Hooper film. This is sort of gritty and grime-laden, yet it's very run-of-the-mill. It's a run-of-the-mill slasher, sort of well-dressed, I guess, in an old apartment building. With this one, the tone is a little bit odd as well, and it has that noughties bleakness in parts, but it's also got this stack of 80s and 90s light-hearted tropes, and often in the musical stabs as well. I don't know, it's pretty average. Following the toolbox murders, we have the hospital-based J-horror movie, Infection. I really wanted to like this one, of course I did. I want to like them all, uh, but I wanted to like this one a lot more than I did. It has this sort of ace feel about it you know that it's going to be good you're really excited when you pop it on but it's just a bit shabby i don't know what to make of it i know that i don't want to watch it again i know that much and with a score also with half marks for me it is the fan unfavorite blade trinity now Even I can see from a mile off that this is a massive drop off from the first two movies, that is evident, but I've got no horse in this race. So it was with a wonderful relief that I know someone that does have a horse in the race. He's not merely a man, he's a leader of men. It is the wonderful human being that is Paul Chanter. He took a quick break from recording in the studio to chat with us all about this comic book hero, Blade. Yeah, that's right. We are now going to talk about Blade Trinity. I
3: have to ask a couple of questions. What can you tell me about vampires? They exist.
1: First he faced their gods, then he battled their demons, but all that was only the beginning.
3: He's come back. Vampire final solution. You can't win this war alone. Who the hell are you people?
4: My father meant for us to help you.
3: Whistler's daughter. What the
1: hell makes you think you know about hunting vampires? Just for starters, I used to be one. Blade Trinity.
6: There's nothing stopping them now. There's me.
0: right okay so this this is gonna be weird paul right i've re-watched blade trinity stupidly i don't know why finished it about 10
5: minutes ago <laughs> uh, i finished it about uh, 40 minutes ago okay cool uh, all, all three <laughs> all three in a row <laughs> how's that you win
1: um
0: I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> I don't know what, but there we go, I, I, no, I only watched it a couple of months ago and I thought, I oh, don't you know what, I've completely forgotten which one is which and what's what, so. Blade, Blade Trinity is the shit one. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, okay, well let's kick it off, like before we get to Blade Trinity, are you that comic guy?
5: No, well, not when it comes to Blade, no, I didn't come across Blade in the comics, at all I mean because I think blade was introduced in like 1973 or something and when I was reading comics as a kid I was just you know the the big ones like you know Batman Superman Spider-Man the Hulk Um. so and I didn't really I didn't read I didn't read many horror comics I knew they were out there but they weren't something like <laughs> weirdly I wasn't a big horror fan when I was a kid so um, I would probably would have looked at the pictures and thought, yeah, cool. But if I started to get into the, the actual story of it, it probably would have freaked me out and stuff like that. So, <laughs>
3: yeah,
5: yeah. So I didn't, you know, until I was weaned onto Hammer Horror when I was a bit older, maybe. So my introduction to Blade was like a lot of the majority of people, I guess, was through the first film.
0: I'm shocked at that. Wesley Snipes, like, was he someone that you were into at the time? as a rising action star or at at the time of this, he was already pretty firm to like be an action star.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, I, he was kind of in terms of action and stuff. He was, he, he was somebody I, I, I knew of his work. I wasn't really into it. Like, you know, I think around that time there would have been stuff like passenger 57 and demolition man and stuff. I mean, I saw demolition man, um but that was mainly for Stallone rather than Wesley Snipes. But, um, sure so no no not really a big fan of his action stuff but i think uh i think the film of his that i paid most attention to was be- before blade was the fan with robert de niro um because it was good film because i'm a huge de niro fan early good de niro and i'd i'd read the book of the fan i'd, I'd got because i knew i knew that they were making it so i got the book and and read that and uh uh i knew that wesley snipes was playing the um the character opposite de niro so that was that was kind of my first main uh wesley snipes film that i'd sort of sought out that he was in and blade i i think blade just kind of i don't know it just kind of looked cool it sounded cool and uh, yeah i'm going to watch that of course i'm going to watch that <laughs> it's got vampires in it you know yeah i'll watch it <laughs>
0: My friends were very much of the thing where Wesley Snipes was today's action hero and Schwarzenegger and um, Stallone. They were the old school now and things are moving on and it was much more bright, much more fantastical, much more like fast and up-to-date sort of thing. So I was just, because I'm such a fan of those early Stallone films and Schwarzenegger films, Yeah. I was just like against Blade from the off. Right. Really? Like when you, yeah, oh, definitely. When you heard about
5: like the film Blade happening, were you excited to get your bum in the seats and, and watch that? I, I, I didn't even know it was coming. I didn't know that Blade, the film, was on its way because I, like I said, I was ne- never a big Wesley Snipes fan, so I didn't keep an eye on what Wesley Snipes was doing. Like at that time, if you told me what's De Niro, what are De Niro's next three films, I could tell you what he was going to be doing you know because i kept an eye on his on the the news of what he was up to but wesley snipes what the passenger 57 guy now i don't care so i think i just hired it i just randomly hired it from uh mvc do you remember mvc no no oh okay um, i think it's i think it stood for music video club and uh, yeah they used to uh, rent do rentals and stuff so I just I just rented this film because it just looked kind of cool. Sounded maybe I saw the trailer and that sold me on it a bit, but yeah, I just I just got this film and watched it. and was, That's really cool. The fact that it had Wesley Snipes in it wasn't the selling point to me um, at that point. I didn't even know it was a Marvel property. You know, it was just it was just a cool action it was horror mix. It's quite weird actually, Blade. Really, when you think about it. I always consider Blade
0: um, to be a a bit like Underworld uh, and films like that where – this this is my mind. This is before I'd even seen them, I'll be honest with you. I've Ah, only recently just seen the first Blade. Right. Um, So it's something I was just never interested. It was for someone else that sort of liked Hollywood horror. Ah, It's not going to interest me. So I'm not going to get into it. And I tell you what, my experience with all three films – was good. Like right. the first film, I loved it. Straight away went into the second film and a couple of months later I d- I did the third. And you know, I I'm not too precious about it because I've not got that history and you know, I had a good time with all of them. I think
5: I think with Blade because of the property that it was and you know, it was this Marvel property that nobody nobody knew about. It was kind of just yeah it's there and and nobody really knows who or what blade is so it didn't it, the character didn't come with any pre-existing baggage like batman or superman you know every, everybody's got their own idea of what batman should be everybody's got their own idea of what superman should be so because the character was so devoid of that pre-existing stuff it, it, he was kind of ripe for adaptation you know so somebody could take that and make it uh, what they wanted there, but no, you know, nobody had any deep investment in blade So they were able to take that core idea and mold it into this horror action martial arts Humunculus, you know, it's like um, Yeah, it was it was it was quite a malleable property. So and I think that's why I think that's why it did well because there were no expectations of it so you know when something's got no expectations it can easily exceed expectations. That's exactly what it did, I think.
0: I totally agree. I think that it was, looking at the history of it, uh, admittedly from Wikipedia and just a couple of articles, but it does seem that nobody expected too much from this and then it it just did crazy enough to get like a a sequel pretty quick. Let's talk about the first two films quickly, in brief. Is, Is it something that you have since bought and would say that yeah i'm definitely a fan of these um i i wouldn't buy
5: a trilogy box set (laughs) (laughs) blade and blade 2 definitely and we'll get into it in a bit but blade trinity is um no that's a hard pass from me um wow but i mean like blade like i said when that came out on, on video uh i was i was obsessed with it bought it on dvd immediately then what what i didn't do with blade i did with blade 2 i followed blade 2 i knew blade 2 was coming i knew who was making it i knew who was in it i was reading reviews on ain't it cool before it came out i saw interviews with guillermo del toro i saw production art you know i i was all over that because i was waiting for it and then i saw it in the cinema with like my three brothers and uh and we were just, we were just all over that because we had all seen the first one because it kind of, you know, I think I think Blade did well on word of mouth, and I think that's how that kind of thing went went round. So we were all, I love that, we were all well up for Blade Two, which is very much its own its own thing, and 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 it builds on the first one. They're very different, but there is some. There's definitely some DNA that runs through the pair of them, so they do match up, and not not just because Wesley Snipes is in it and wearing the same stuff or whatever. But it is very much a continuation, and I know that apparently for the action scenes, Del Toro kind of studied what Stephen Norrington did in the first one, so they kind of matched up. So the action had a, a had a through line kind of thing. So it did. It was consistent, you know, even though his story was getting a bit more involved at the same time getting smaller but yeah i think blade 2 was a was a really good follow-up you know even with somebody from bros in it but uh, you
0: know.
5: <laughs> he's good in it he's good I wonder I go. when that will come up he's good in it you can't you know it's like i hate it it's like when Axel Rose stepped in to sing for ACDC dc and I, I wanted to hate it so much but he he was he was actually all right and I really hated that fact. But you know.
1: Oh, you
0: bring up Bros. Love it. <laughs> they, they should be brought up in every, every chat. Um, okay. Just randomly, yeah. You're completely right, of course. Those first two films even though that you can sense the different production, you can sense the vibe in part 2 where they're really confident in what they're doing now, yeah um, the, the recurring a- actors. there is a real finesse about it and it is glossy, but it's also gritty at the same time and it's it's some of the actions really harsh. It's really cool to watch. yeah, still today, even knowing like uh, bits and pieces of CG, you're just like it, you wouldn't do that today. It's still completely forgivable and a great watch. Yeah, where things went crazy, I think, is forgetting that through line with part three. That that's the issue with it. I think is that the just an opening, the the opening setup where Blade does this somersault in front of nobody, but just to show off to the camera what digital effects you might be able to pull off these days. Yeah, it just doesn't seem in the spirit of what went before it initial thoughts of blade trinity what gets you goat about
5: it what you want initial thoughts from when i first watched it i love that yeah well like clearly clearly i'm a fan of blade and blade 2 so i didn't go i for some reason i didn't go and see blade trinity at the, at the cinema so i watched it on dvd and i <laughs> i didn't sit there with my mouth hanging open but my reaction to the whole film like for two hours or however long, however long it goes on for, was kind of, oh no. That was kind of it, you know. It's like for two hours, my brain was going, oh no, because it even starts with a voiceover from Ryan Reynolds. Why? It's like this is a Blade film. Why am I listening to Ryan Reynolds? You know, it's like. That's that's just wrong from the start. That feels wrong. And then there is so much wrong with Blade Trinity. And like you were just saying about there is like a definite through line between Blade and Blade 2. You would think that that would carry on into Blade Trinity because it's the same writer and that writer is now directing. So you would think that that should be solid. This guy's written all three. Yeah. But the only reason he's directing is because... Stephen Norrington was sent the script, like, do you want to come back and finish the trilogy? And he read the script and was like, that's fucking awful. I don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) Guillermo del Toro was sent the script. He said, that's fucking awful, and I'm making Hellboy, which I've always wanted to make, so no thanks. So they had nobody – I think there was a few other people that they kind of tried to get interested in it, but nobody liked the script – so they basically just said, Well, why don't you do it then? And he'd never directed anything before. And he's given this this basically wrapping up a trilogy and like the attempts at comedy. I mean, Ryan Reynolds just being the irritating version of Ryan Reynolds. Um, you know, <laughs> saying, Every line is a snarky, sarky, uh, one liner. With this awkward silence at the end, that's meant to be for laughs, like it's a comedy, like they haven't put the canned laughter in at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah. And in the other films, Blade was amusing. He wasn't funny, and the only reason he was amusing is because he was so straight. Like you kind of laugh because that guy hasn't reacted to anything. So like the beating up of that copper in in the doctor's flat when he's you know when he when when he whips a gun out on the guy and says, fuck me, you know, you suck this, and whips a gun out on him. (laughs) That creases me up every time. And then when he's got the laser sight pointed at Ron Perlman who thinks he's got Blade in his sights kind of thing, but he's already got him set up and stuff like that's just funny, but the awful attempts at comedy in it. And the worst part for me really about Blade Trinity is that the franchise took a dive so fast. That's the saddest bit about it. Uh, Norrington passed on it, like I said, and Del Toro did as well. So, yeah, they just gave this, gave this guy, the, the guy who wrote it, David Goya, I mean, I'm not going to have a dig at David Goya, he wrote The Dark Knight with Nolan and his brother. But, you know, he, he didn't. he clearly didn't have what it took to direct a film of that size and scope. And also to cope with an, uh, an actor uh, of, you know, Wesley Snipes' character, because um, Snipes had clearly kind of lost interest in the role as well. Uh, I think he might. might you can felt, tell. I think he might have felt slightly sidelined anyway, because there was so much emphasis on these bringing in so many new characters. I think he actually tried to sue Newline at one point as well, because he felt. What? like... Um, yeah, I think in two thousand five, I think he he tried to sue them for non-payment and the fact that his character was sidelined um, in favor of um, Whistler's daughter and Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds. But um, you know, him and the director, him and David Goya fell out. Um, I think he, I think Snipes actually choked him out at one point. If you look up uh, just just Google Pat Oswalt and Blade Trinity, and he he tells all the stories about. Uh, it's it's kind of legendary his behavior on set now but um like leaving he wouldn't communicate with anybody in person he wouldn't come out of his trailer which was just puffing out weed smoke endlessly um he wouldn't come out of his trailer uh if he did it was just so he could leave post-it notes everywhere that were actually signed blade and there's a scene where he's lying on a table in blade trinity i don't know if you remember it. well you probably do because you only watched it about an hour um there's a scene where he's laying on a table and it then turns into this Dracula. Go- oh, we'll get into that as well. Christ! Um, and he opens his eyes just before he attacks everybody. Wesley Snipes refused to open his eyes in that scene, so his eyes are CGI in that scene. If you watch it what? again, if you watch it again, you could tell a mile away. He doesn't open his eyes. They CGI some open eyes, on it's just yeah, the whole oh thing. My. And the fact that they, they're up against Dracula, um, that always felt. Kinda of tacky to me. I don't know why. I think they felt the same because they changed his name to Drake in the middle of the film. It's like they couldn't <laughs> even bother to yes. call him Dracula. And what's he called? Dominic Purcell or something?
0: Yeah, po- Dominic Purcell.
5: Um He's just awful. Just really the not, worst. not scary at all. His line delivery is awful. Um uh, uh, po- what's he called? Posey Barker? Posey Parker, her teeth don't fit in her mouth properly, so her lip looks really weird. They didn't fit her teeth. It's just, there's so much wrong with it. <laughs> and it's such a fall from grace, you know. It's like Blade and Blade Two are great. They are great. And Blade Trinity is fucking awful. <laughs> you know, it's just how, how far can you fall and how quick as well, you know. I still sort of liked it though. There was I know, th- I know. You've got you've got some kind of, I don't know. You've got a higher tolerance for shit than I have.
0: I guess. I, I think I have. Like the Dominic Purcell. You're completely right. Now, that Dracula role is so. In I don't know why they bothered inserting that character at all. Um, I understand like oh, you want a big bad? Who's the biggest bag you can have in this? I, I sort of understand the thinking. Yeah. But what awful casting. Like Prison yeah. Break, he was always uh, so wooden in that. And for some reason, I found, I, again, I found that really watchable right. just because of this guy the way he, he's not very good at what he does. Like, I can't believe, <laughs> like, I can't believe his career. It's fantastic. Great. It's just like... The, so the watching a car brothers, crash, you know, from Bros, <laughs> brilliant. Fine, okay, but but what about like Ryan Reynolds? Like as you say, they overtake from Wesley Snipes in this a little bit, like like you mentioned. But it seems at points like they're trying to set up not the the end of this but this is a new franchise where these yeah. these this team is going to start taking things on no wonder he was pissed off with the whole thing
5: That's exactly what they were planning to do they 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 were setting uh, up this this I mean they call them the night stalkers which is an awful name as well but yeah they were basically planning to set up a spin-off of Hannibal King and uh, what's she called Annabelle Whistler because um, I think there's a there's an alternate ending where those two are in a in a club and a really shoddily put-together werewolf turns up and uh, oh, no. that's supposed to be there. Oh, no, oh, Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's no, it's no wonder that Snipes was pissed because, like, the character whose name is in the title of the film has been sidelined. In his own franchise, he's side- sidelined, you know, by these two young upstarts. And, you know, whatever Snipes' character person his his own actual character might be like anybody would be pissed at that. It's like, hang on, it's, of course, it be a Blade film. What the fuck's going on here? You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you think
5: needs mentioning uh, about Blade Trinity? I I don't think so because I think Blade Trinity, it's it's bad. I mean it, it it's it's kind of suffers from the. Um, the third film curse you know the 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 trilogy curse that you know the the first film there are so many supposed trilogies that, do, that that do this the first film is great introduces the world sets up everything second film isn't bogged down with any of that setup so just gets straight into it and then deeper into the characters and you know a complete turmoil yeah. for everybody and then the third film they fuck it all up, and there are so many trilogies that that do that. You know, you know, whatever you think of them, like Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, awesome intro to Spider-Man, Spider-Man Two, regarded as one of the best superhero films ever made. Spider-Man Three, they rammed it full, so full of shit <laughs> that it just it just started to bust at the seams and start squirting effluent everywhere because they just they lost track of what they were doing. They just got overconfident, and stupid with it. And there are so many, you could even argue that with Star Wars, you know, the original trilogy, that it loses it on the third one. And I will put my hand up and say that even the Dark Knight trilogy, for me, does that. Dark Knight Rises, Dark Knight Rises would have been great if the Dark Knight hadn't been before it, you know. um But yeah, so just Blade Trinity, the, the only, like, my final thoughts on Blade Tril- Trinity is just don't watch it. <laughs> Just just watch the first two. <laughs> oh, brilliant.
0: I recently read as well when I initially watched uh, Blade Trinity for the third time, when I was looking stuff up that there is a new one um, that's been greenlit. Uh, do you know anything about this?
3: Yes,
5: and he's officially already a- already not appeared on screen. Um, what? <laughs> I could have worded that a lot better, I? Yeah, it's got Mahershala Ali. Uh, he was in the last season of True Detective. He is, he is Blade. Um, oh, all right, okay. And I think two days ago, Delroy Lindo uh, signed on to be in it. In a, they don't know what the role is, but um, and it is going to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because Blade is obviously a Marvel character. Um, and Kevin Feige, you know, the Marvel head honcho, has said that it will be a pg-13 film it won't be r-rated wow okay. so how are you going to do that i don't know pg-13 these days does kind of push it as much as it possibly can so it's vampires they don't have to have red blood which is the thing that really bothers sensors that's why all the orcs have got black blood in lord of the rings so if they get around it that kind of way who knows but um but yes he has i don't know when this is gonna air but um I don't know, spoilers, I guess, If for people who haven't seen Eternals. Um, there's a, there's a post credit scene at the end of Eternals. Right. Where, where one of the characters, played by, what's he called, Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. Um, that's his actual name? Kit Harington, that's it. I don't know why that suddenly came to me. <laughs> he goes to pick up a sword, which is a big deal for the character he's playing. It's like in Marvel lore, it's a big deal. And then you just hear a voice say, "Are you sure you want to do that, Mister Whitman, or whatever he's called?" And that voice—that is uh, Mahershala Ali saying that. So that is Blade saying that. And there is apparently there's some comment in Eternals about vampires. So he's being got it eased into it. But you know they're doing stuff like um, Oscar Isaac's just uh, finished this a series of Moon Knight, which is you know when Marvel start to get into the. Uh, sort of supernatural type things, so you've got like things like Blade and Moon Knight and Ghost Rider, and possibly like Doctor Strange as well.
0: Yeah, 100%. Uh, they're, that's they're coming setting
5: up. them all up for maybe putting them all together at some point. So, um, yeah, then that's that's there is a new Blade film coming, but I'm not entirely sure when. I don't think they it's not going to be next year, it's probably going to be 2023.
0: By the sounds of it, Paul, you're very interested in this. Knowing that, just saying, oh, yesterday somebody signed on,
5: so you're obviously still keeping an eye. I keep an eye on a lot of stuff, so so <laughs> I know the boring details about a lot of stuff that I probably some stuff that I probably won't even watch. I know details about, but um, but I don't think I think it will be a very very different animal to the 1998 blade. There was there was something about that film that I think would be very very difficult for them to reinvent or catch. I think I think that film was lightning in a bottle, and people didn't realise it. You know, Black Panther got a lot of credit for having the first black lead in a superhero film, and Deadpool gets a lot of credit for being the first R-rated fuck-laden film, yeah. um, comic book film. But if you if you ignore the horrendous Spawn. Adaptation, Blade was before all of that. Too um, Blade was the first. Blade was uh, a, tra- a sort of transitional film as well because um, um, DC had Batman and Superman, you know, and they'd already released uh, Batman eighty nine and 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 Batman Returns, and sort of fucked it up with Batman and Robin. And they had Superman, you know, Christopher Reeve Superman. They did well and then got kind of shitty. And Marvel had only ever done like direct to video releases. Of a really bad Captain America film, uh, yes. a really bad Dolph Lundgren Punisher film, obviously the TV shows, and uh, a, yeah, and a Roger Corman version of Fantastic Four that was so shite that it got <laughs> that it got it wasn't even released and became legendary, you know. But Marvel, so Marvel hadn't had <laughs> Marvel hadn't had a theatrical release for one of their characters since 1986 with Howard the Duck. That was Marvel's big cinematic release. So Blade was the first Marvel character to have a successful debut. You know, Blade paved the way for... It's crazy. ...Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, the first X-Men film, and it's like the kind of forgotten ginger stepkid that sort of set up and started the whole golden age, if you want to call it that, of comic book films that we are currently going through.
0: It is bizarre because it isn't like that Captain America. You know, it is a real big film. It was a massive success. You know, I remember it being out of our video shop for a long time. You couldn't get it on the first week of release. Yeah. So, I don't know. It is mad. Um, Do you know, final, final question, do you know of Wesley... Uh, is going to be part of this new thing? Has he been asked, or did he just say no, or is it going to happen?
5: Um, there, was to- See, this, there was some talk. See, this all. There was some I'm in for the gossip. There was some talk years ago when the rights to Blade, before the rights to Blade reverted back to Marvel, because um, New Line, which is owned by Warner Brothers, had the rights to, to Blade. They released the, the trilogy. And there was talk about an underworld blade crossover right. at one point, but the rights reverted back, so they didn't get around to that. So when the rights back when the rights went back to Marvel, uh, Wesley Snipes did meet with Marvel about kicking it all off again. Met with Kevin Feige and and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't, I can't, I don't really remember when that was. I think it was a while ago now, but he has been asked what he thinks of Maharshal Ali being cast as Blade and and he's like you know, probably like a three word answer, he'll be fine, you know, that kind of thing, you know. I think I think I think somewhere in Wesley Slope's mind he still thinks he is actually Blade. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is awesome. Um yeah, there's something kind of cool about that as well as kind of weird and sad. I think he approves of where this is going, and you know, if you if you were if you were Wesley Snipes, you'd you would be slightly pissed that you didn't get to return to the character, but you'd also have to be, you'd have to resign yourself to the fact that yeah, Marvel Studios have got a hold of it now, and they seem to be they seem to be doing all right at the minute, <laughs> so maybe this character is going to be okay. The only thing is that the only thing that hasn't been released that I haven't heard anywhere is who's going to direct it. Because it's it's a weird it's a weird mix. Because if you want to, if you want to make it this horror action kind of crossover thing, I, there aren't many people who can do both. Um, I think they were lucky with Stephen Norrington, who was who was great, and I loved his style on Blade. And I don't give a fuck what anybody says. There's something about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that I like. And I think it might just be Stephen Norrington's direction, even though that film has issues of its own. So, yeah, there's there's no word, I don't think, on who's going to direct the new Blade. I know I've heard of people who have been asked about it but can't do it. Um, oh, what's the guy who directed Us and Get Out? Jordan Peele. Thank you. Yeah, he was asked about it, and he was like, I can't do it, I'm I'm doing The Twilight Zone series Um, oh he would have
0: been great it it
5: would yeah it would have been it would have been good i don't know how he would have coped with the action though you know um somebody like ryan coogler but he's he's wrapped up in black panther 2 at the minute but that's not to say you can't jump ship i know that um what's he called john watts i think he's called the guy who's directed the three spider-man films he's jumping ship to do the next to do the fantastic four that's the next thing he's doing so it wouldn't be inconceivable that ryan coogler could, could jump and do blade but it's whether he's got time but i don't know it's going it's going to be a very different type of blade and i don't know if that's a a good thing or a bad. it's going to be what it's going to be because they're going to want it to fit into a universe that's already pre-established so you can't all of a sudden have this character sort of pile in and start slicing people up and turning them into ash and saying that yeah, some motherfuckers always want to ice skate uphill, and all this kind—that's of, not going to happen in a Marvel film.
0: <laughs> well, you get one f bomb.
5: I think you get one, but I don't think you even get one in a Marvel film because it's it's a Disney film, don't forget. Yeah,
0: good point. Good point. So, well, <laughs> look, we've we've we'll both be here to to judge it. So definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, we've got like well over half an hour on Blade Trinity. Hey, how's was that?
5: That's, that's inconceivable. I mean, we did, we did talk about Blade and Blade 2. If somebody sat out to talk for half an hour on Blade Trinity, I don't know how many times I can... How many different variations of it's <laughs> shit I can come
3: out with.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul Chanter, for getting involved with Blade Trinity. Um, I made it clear on last month's show that I was not a fan of the werewolf myth. But here we go again, so the next one I put up with, it's called Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed. So yes, werewolf lore, much like Jekyll and Hyde, I rarely, rarely enjoy movies that utilise it. But for what it is, Ginger Snaps 2 is a decent sequel, and I would say this is a just above average movie in its own right. The makeup is really cool. But the majority of the movie just plays out in a facility for recovering addicts. And it should have been named Cliche Asylum. It is really poorly written. Just like that joke. And just like that joke, it lets everything down in a big way. Incident at Loch Ness is next. And of course, (laughs) even saying that is silly. Yeah, it's a mockumentary. uh, That is thankfully never ever boring but it also doesn't really excite you in any way. It relies way too heavily on Spinal Tap-esque comedy rather than frights. And when the meaty stuff happens in that final third of the film, it's more like shit sandwich than Stonehenge. Quite unfortunate. But slightly better still than that, it's better than Incident at Loch Ness, it's Club Dread. And well, it made a little bit more sense this one, I am cool with this film it's a decent enough slasher comedy and yeah I was expecting it to be total trash so my barometer of horror was very low to begin with so maybe I liked it so much because it was a pleasant surprise imagine if I had some friends (laughs) we would just all be sitting around my house watching this with a few beers on the go what fun I'd probably have Following Club Dread, we have Shudder, and that is a Thai movie that borrows its spooky imagery completely from J Horror until the very clever final scenes. It also shoes in a trope that I won't mention here because it spoils way too much of the film. But it does go a long way into finding an angle to make up for all that horror theft in its earlier moments. Following this, we have Secret Window. And this one is really popular, don't know why because it's not very good. It is a movie where Johnny Depp plays out one of the most overused tropes in horror. Even that warm fuzzy Stephen King glow doesn't go far enough to warm me up. Yes, this is a Stephen King film of course and Depp plays an author, of course he does. I can only think the reason why this one is so popular is because it's got Depp in it. And it's also a Stephen King short story. I think it's a short story. Regardless, if you end up missing it, you're not going to lose any sleep. But forget all those 5 out of 10s. Forget the average. We have one 6 out of 10 here. So at my number 11... It is helter-skelter.
1: They were a new generation looking for peace and love. They found Charles Manson. I am your father now. CBS takes you inside the cult. I feel like you can see inside me. The crimes. Killing everybody in the house.
3: What are you doing here? I'm the devil.
1: Shockwaves all over the Southland as the victims of the Bel Air slayings have been identified. And the conviction. If we only nailed text and the girls and not Manson, This will not be a successful prosecution. The true story that shocked a nation. You did come. Helter Skelter, coming to CBS Sunday.
0: So, Helter Skelter, it's all right. There has been so many of these made that I don't know what I've already seen and what I haven't seen. So I approach this with a little bit of caution because some are just really bad. They're really awful. But this one was held together only just... Uh, And it was all thanks to this skittish and rather lightweight performance by Daniel Faraday from Lost. Another thing that really stood out was the Tate murders. They were pretty brutal too. And it sort of stopped this one feeling like a made-for-TV movie. Although, for all I know, it probably was. Now, if this was any other year, I don't think this one would have made my top 20. But, Slim Pickens in 2004 it's made its way up to number 11. And there you have it. I sincerely hope that you got something from that lot. I mean, there are some sort of loved sequels amongst them in Ginger Snaps 2 and Anacondas, but it's not good enough, right? I think maybe we should check in with the Weller mothership and see if Sci-Fi Corner or Fantasy, was that in good health in 2004? Was it? Hello, welcome to Sci-Fi Corner with a splash of fantasy. The star date is 2004 AD. I am feeling proper rubbish. So excuse me if I do sound a bit weird going forward for this segment. But yeah, I feel weird. It took me about five minutes to climb up the stairs. Not well, I think I've got a cold. Anyway. We're here. When I say stairs, of course, I mean when I got beamed up because we're in the Walla Not Weller mothership. So before we hit this horror top 10, I thought we should take a quick flight up here into the spook-free skies and reflect on 14 things. But before we get to those 14 things, in 2004, there was some great television that I have to mention. First of all, I know that Kingdom Hospital came out. It has something to do with Stephen King, but I remember being really bored and I can't remember it well enough to actually go into why. Uh, I definitely wasn't going to watch it again, but I know it came out in this year and it's got a big fan base. But it would be really unfair of me to actually go into what I could remember from such a long time ago, so I'm not going to bother. Next up though is Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Now that was also released in this year, and that is something that I did watch, especially for this 2004 episode. It was pretty cool. It has two of my favourite actors in it, in Alice Lowe and Matt Berry. And my only issue was that it felt like a test run for the sort of off-the-wall nonsense comedy that was perfected just a few years later. Uh, But there is a caveat with me saying that, because The Mighty Boosh also started in 2004 as well, and they just nailed it from the off unfortunately as bonkers as that is it isn't a genre pick so let's not waste too much time with this or i'm just going to go off on one about how good the mighty boosh is so we have two biggies left two big tv series that began in 2004 the Battlestar galactica tv series was then green lit after the remarkable success from that incredible pilot the year before and for my money Apart from the show that I'm about to talk about in roughly one minute, I think that Battlestar was the best TV show ever aired. I mean, ever, forever, ever. For my personal taste, at least. The writers on that show appeared to intrinsically know exactly what would push my buttons week after week. Whether that particular episode dealt with war, dealt with romance, family, science, or just laser-blasting robots, or all of the above, I was hooked. But there was one show one show that began in 2004 that just topped it. event television like I'd never seen before I was approaching 30 years old when this first aired and it made me feel giddy like a kid again and it wasn't because I was focused on nostalgia like I was with Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or even with my favorite 80s horror movies it was that this was something completely new taking influence sure from what had taken place before it but this was all absorbing for me and as far as entertainment was involved I had a new favourite something that I could champion and watch and discuss with my soon to be wife. I loved Lost so much. Yeah, that's right, I said it, Lost. And through the years, I've watched this series four times completely in full, and once I also watched it via something called Chronologically Lost, where some poor chump, in a ridiculous amount of hours splicing the show into pieces, scene by scene, they then place them back chronologically, so us fans can watch this insane show in a brand new way. And if you two are a fan of Lost and you haven't done this yet, then type in chronologically Lost into Google and just get busy with it. It's still there. So, a few years ago, i just completed another rewatch of the show and I signed up with Apple Podcasts for the first time. Claire was banging to podcasts and I'd enjoyed my rewatch of Lost so much, I just went in there looking for a Lost podcast. Just so I could gather some more information on the show There was a few out there But my favourite by far Was a show called The Lost Boys The podcast begins like this I'm Jacob And I've seen Lost seven times And then another voice pipes in And says I'm Jack And I've never seen Lost before And finally Jacob finishes Jack is about to watch Lost For the first time And then that lost credit music rolls in and you hear one of them say fuck in the background. It's really weird and I love that. Uh, And then they're off critiquing each episode as they watch along. It's a great premise. It's enlightening for the gossip and the breakdowns of each episode. As well as them being just genuinely funny in places. Two mates just rambling on at each other. And Jacob is just willing jack on to get as engrossed into it as he is. I love this program, uh, and I can confidently say it's still in my top five podcasts that I've ever listened to. So, I couldn't let this opportunity pass when A Year in Horror is covering 2004 to not talk to that show creator, Jacob Stolworthy. So, we hooked up a couple of months back, and we delved deep into Lost. Now, normally here, I'd let you know a bit more about him, but being a consummate professional interviewer, I asked him during the chat, so, I'll stop rambling for a bit and let's just talk about Lost. Hello, Jacob. How are you doing?
2: Hello, mate. Good to
3: meet you.
0: So, this is pretty cool for me. Before the Lost Boys podcast, I just thought yeah. podcasts were a joke. Like, I was like, why would I ever listen to a podcast? What's the point? Like, I'm I know the Ricky Gervais one was really yeah. popular, and that was it. That was all all I knew. Yeah. And listened to yours and got totally addicted to podcasts and podcasting, really? and just decided to watch Lost yet again along with you. I haven't sped on like many other people have, so I'm I'm sticking with you. But then, like you, I've just You're watched like, it a bundle. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So I'm going to kick this off. The first question, and I know a lot of this you would have already answered on your podcast, and I have already told our listeners they need to be like, if you're interested in Lost in any way, start again and just start with this podcast. But how did you first discover Lost? Uh, Were you there from day one?
2: I mean, yeah, in the UK, day one, which was like, what, August 2005. So like, I mean, I hadn't, it's mad how I watch so much now. Like, my life revolves around film and TV. And back then, I barely, I think I was what, 13, 14? All yeah. I really watched was EastEnders, to be honest with you. And I didn't, like, that lost my foray into kind of international television, even though it's not really, you know, but like American yeah. dramas. And um, I got completely swept up by the, the, the Channel 4 promotion over here. I hadn't really heard of it, if I'm honest, at all um, in America, but then I heard it was like the big thing. So, yeah, the, the night it, it aired on Channel 4, the first ever night, um, I was I was tuning in. It was like sandwiched between Big Brother evictions. Yes. Um, and I was like, Big Brother nut. So, like, I I remember just like Davina call going, and next up, Lost. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, I'll give it a go. But, yeah, no, absolutely, like, within weeks my whole family as well but my mum swiftly stopped because i became too obsessed with it and she just didn't want to be any didn't want to have any part <laughs> of that
0: <laughs> what's wrong with her like, I know. yeah it was for uk telly it was the first time i'd watched something because you always hear oh uk telly so superior to uh us at the time that's all all you would hear like we've got the best tv in the world and then this came on and it looked like a film and i was instantly invested in everyone because they didn't use all the cgi for the plane and things like that everything just still holds up now i was i was so excited and it just hasn't ended and it tends to be a conversation starter with people with me um i work in the music industry so i'm always on the same page with music but for me if you're going to be a mate do you like lost you know, yeah. that's where it's, that's where it all begins. I take it you were just ad- addicted from the off. There was, there was no like, oh, I'll give this another go. Like from episode one, you were a bang away.
2: Yeah, I was in, I was absolutely in. And I just struggled to believe that there are some people out there who just weren't, you know, <laughs> because yeah. I mean, like you say, by, by, by that same token, I mean, I'm hoping you have a lost friends who, who didn't like lost, but it's a struggle for me when I'm chatting someone and they just can't, they talk about loss in like a with like an eye roll and I'm like but you know even that first season was brilliant from the off like just absolutely fantastic and um just like exactly how it should be done and yeah I was I was there from the beginning I didn't waver at all I don't think I think the only time I was like okay I see this is going to be agonizing was the um episode 11 uh, all the best cowboys have daddy issues where at the end they find what we go on to discover is the hatch and uh, it finished and on Channel 4 they always showed on E4 the next week's episode so you could switch over and watch it but obviously the fear then was that you'd probably if you couldn't watch it for every reason because obviously we didn't have it wasn't in every room yeah. you might wait two weeks for an episode and it's like no way so I remember that I'd always resisted but that week I was like, I need to just see the opening. I'll just watch the opening and then I'll switch it off. And I went down and it starts with Sawyer and Kate like swimming in the lagoon or whatever. <laughs> and I had nothing to do. And I was like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> I think that's the extent of my frustration. I still, I still, I even like that episode. I know Jack despised it, but. Wow,
0: well, yeah. Well, let's get to this podcast. So over the years, you've watched it several times, as you say in your opening gambit on the podcast. And yet we've got... the. I mean first all first of all your name is Jacob and then we've yeah. got Jack Shepherd yeah. um, who's also your your compadre on the podcast how did you meet like is, were you friends already or did you think across like uni's corridor like oh that's the same name as in Lost well, how how did basically, you guys get together
2: basically i've just gone through life collecting people who have good who have names attached to, to Lost now <laughs> i i um, I worked with, I worked, yeah, worked with him, um, and he, yeah, he was at, at the Independent before I joined. Uh, I work at the Independent, uh, well, no longer a newspaper, but I work on the culture section. And he was on the culture team, and we, when I joined, we obviously became friends just because he's a nice guy. Um, I wouldn't tell him that to his face, uh, and then. I was always in the head, I was like, this guy's Jack Shepard. Like, what the hell? And then I think one day I was like, you do realise you share the net. He's like, of course, I realised that I've never watched it. But people, you know, say to me all the time. And then he was like, he was the one who suggested the podcast. He would probably tell you differently, but he was the one who he liked to make out that I put him through the, you know, the nightmarish uh, kind of prospect of watching hours and hours and recording hours and hours. about loss, it was his idea because he really wanted to do a podcast. He was like, "I think loss seems to attract that fan base. You are that guy, and I've never seen it, so maybe that's a hook." So, and my name is Jack Shepard, and I was like, "Yeah." And my name's Jacob. You won't know what that means, but yeah, you will. uh So yeah, it was. I think a very happy, um happy to realise Jack Shepard was up for doing a lost podcast. Because if I'd if I'd asked him, he said no. I would have been like, "What a wasted opportunity." <laughs> 100 you know? percent oh
0: it, yeah i i can't imagine what, what a great hook though one person that's seen it a ton and you're gonna go through episode by episode with someone that's never seen it I, I need to know how hard has it been just to keep these spoilers away from him
2: uh you know what i have actually it's like a sport for me keeping him <laughs> i i'm I'm not a good liar I don't think I'm not really good at poker I don't really really play poker because I'm not really good at it but and I'd like to think I'm not a manipulative guy but I find myself kind of like really not just like avoiding the subjects at all costs when there's like we're in spoiler territory I like really trying to throw him off the scent and like make up rubbish (laughs) <laughs> and I get real enjoyment from thinking later on he's going to be watched because he's a, he's a clever guy and he ca- he gets a lot of things that I didn't get and I'm thinking you know a lot of people didn't get. My sisters the saying she watches it and she's like immediately like calls like Dave the episode in season two. She's like, um, in the like, he's imaginary like straight off. And I was like, <laughs> what? This is no fun. So with Jack, I think I really, I tried to do it because I like to maybe when he's think going through the thought process he like throws out ideas because he's like, oh no, but Jacob said this. And then it happens and he's like, what, you, you liar?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you two, both been heavily involved within the TV and the film world. These things that lost were thrown out to us. They weren't tropes at the time. They they were writing the rule book uh, to certain extents. And yeah, so all this was fresh at the time. Like we didn't know that that might be an imaginary person, like that, which has been copied a thousand times since. You know. So I get that, like, but it it does frustrate me as a listener when he's spot on. Like, oh, how did you get that? So I'm always thinking, did you cheat?
2: I mean, yeah, it's funny because, like, it doesn't really cross my mind to think that he would look it up because I think he would know that if I ever found out later down the line that he did that, that that would be the end of our friendship. <laughs> uh, no, maybe he does. Who knows? Like, I, I mean, maybe it's something that once season six is wrapped we'll um, and years go by down the pub, he'll just say to me, by the oh. way, I knew who was in the crate. I knew who was in the crate. And I'll be like no so yeah maybe he's just been playing me the entire time i'd like to think that's not the case though yeah yeah i I think you would as a listener you tell me is it really like frustrating when he is really close
0: two times he's done it and and it's been so close and instantly you you will not give it away and you will do exactly what you just said you'll throw him off the scent you go oh really you think that
2: Oh, it's very funny. I can't. I need to listen back. I've never listened back. I used to listen back to each episode every week, but I, I just haven't done that in a while. And I think I'm going to go back and listen through it when I watch Lost Invariably again with someone else and um who's never seen it. And I hope I, I come across those moments and I'm proud of myself. <laughs> uh, well, you,
0: you should. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> so you're watching this episode by episode again, but now you're watching it knowing that you've got to go and do a podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. afterwards and knowing that you're going to have to break things down where maybe you haven't before do you see things differently um because i know since i've been uh, joining you with the podcast i have been i've been breaking little bits down that i would never have thought to do before
2: that's cool I- i'd like to hear that um it's funny because like i watch things with an ob- with a with a very observant eye for my job i guess um and so i'm always kind of thinking just make maybe thinking things taking things a bit too literally sometimes to the point where Damon in love probably like no what you're doing but like that's like that's what we all do right yeah. us who love love we, we that's part of the enjoyment and most of the time there is something in it and sometimes it's just a, uh, a happenstance that it, it could be you know a nice thing to point out but yeah I I having watched it seven times before and going through it the eighth time I have always had things in my mind like little bits that i've liked that i've always never seen other people mention and it's just been a really good opportunity to kind of highlight those things i'm trying to think of a good example but just like line even like as something as little as line delivery um or just something the way i like you know the way someone acts in a scene as well as the more oh did you spot this you know i won't lie i don't i don't spot everything i i do kind of do research um like heavy research before I watch each other and after I watch it and do meticulous notes to make sure there's no um no stone left unturned when we're going through the episode because essentially I just want Jack to kind of be in, you know interest Jack as well and him go ah but sometimes he's like that's dumb
0: well I mean there is critical and then there is knowing how many holes there are in a shower head you know? yeah
2: <laughs> that will always be my favorite I just think it's just fantastic song as are going It's really good. Really fun. Like, just fills me with a lot of joy. Um, Yeah, as well, because I it means I didn't have to do it. You know, (laughs) someone else would have. have. Yeah, yeah, probably would have.
0: After the show had finished, did you think that one of the actors in particular might? sort of rise to the crop and become like a big star? Um, And if so, and who do you think should have been that person?
2: I think it's really, it's really easy to say Matthew Fox. It just never really happened for him, but I think that was part of his own choice, really. So I'm not going to say him. Um, I would probably say Josh Holloway, I guess. And I I kind of expected Josh Holloway to maybe, and I know he was in another TV show and they've, they've been canceled. um, And, you know, it's unfortunate, but that guy is really good and I think he could have had a good like decent film career if he I don't know I don't I don't know if he (laughs) what his story is or anything in terms of agency and stuff but he like can still scenes and I I was really looking back I really think we've been robbed of more Josh Holloway brilliance which is so mad because it's like such that role in the first season is like the kind of like, I'm not really like when I was looking at the promotional materials beforehand, I was like, oh, that guy looks that's gonna be a rubbish role. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is like a bit of a thankless role to begin with, and then like Jin as well. I mean, Daniel Day Kim has like really kind of upended expectations, I think. Yeah. He's become like, apart from Evangeline Lilly, the guy, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there is four of them, um, that, that I can think of that have really done good since, but. No one's really lost out. That everyone is a mm. job in actor at the moment. But uh, yeah, I think Jin, Sun, uh, Kate, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say Anna Lucia as well. Uh, Michelle. Oh yeah, like, like all all doing yeah. really good.
2: Yeah, I mean Anna Lucia like has got some like like bankability behind her because of the 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 grossing the sales of the films that she's in. Right, like totally that's some. Right serious dollar behind her name now um yeah
0: once you do avatar you, you can once you do Avatar,
2: you're up there forever yeah and then you got the fast and furious just like just for good measure <laughs> yeah but yeah like but then you've got like um you know it's good to see like michael emerson just like kind of cranking out the roles like he'll always be working and he'll always be playing shady characters forever more now and that's I, right. I, I find comfort in that yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: he's, whenever he's on the screen it's comfort food i love it yeah, I, yeah.
2: absolutely there was a show. I think
0: it was called. Oh my word! I think Once Upon a Time, some a fairy tale show, and it's like every yeah. member of Lost seems to have either be in it as a star or just a bit part here and there. Yeah. And like, um, I was I would always watch that with my daughter. And yeah, absolutely. Just like, oh, there's Lost. There's Lost. Yeah. There's Lost. Really yeah, love it. Wasn't
2: there like little references as well? Like I remember there was a bit of a like a clock that was. Eight, I never watched it myself, and I've had people say to me like, listeners say you should definitely give Once Upon a Time a go. Would you recommend it? no no (laughs) No, I wouldn't I think think there's other
0: things things. can you say (laughs) probably (laughs) I wouldn't give it a go there's there's better stuff out there um
2: okay right well thanks for your honesty thanks for your honesty (laughs) time is precious too right
0: well you have interviewed several of the big lost hitters and Mm -hmm. for your job you you interview big hitting actors constantly Mm -hmm. um but is there something special we've lost um, when when that comes up when you when you get an actor there? Because I would be quaking.
2: Yeah, it's, it's certainly it's it's. I get more nervous with those guys than I would with with uh, Hollywood elite. To be honest with you, because um, I care what these guys think. I guess that's what it comes down to. Obviously, I get nervous when I interview anyone. Uh, not nervous, but just like, oh, I hope I asked the right questions in the time I've got pointed. <laughs> With the lost stuff, it is really like because you've if you've not set the interview up as strictly a lost interview, which that, there have been some instances where that's been the case, it's even harder to get yeah. questions last thing because it's like the PRs be like, wait, why are we talking about this? For um, <laughs> twenty minutes, it, it's just like yeah, they're like, can we promote the film that's out next week? Um, but if it's like been you know pre-arranged to be for the lost boys podcast um that's pretty special because you just get to just flip and talk about lost with someone who was in it or someone who wrote it or whatever and that's a moment i get less nervous i get more like really like quite fanboy um without whilst i'm trying to maintain some form of professionalism even if i'm like speaking to someone who's like written about Lost for a long time or um you know just just a big name in the lost game basically in any way I'd get a bit like
0: (laughs) it's like well it's the equivalent of me interviewing you right now honestly I'm I'm so happy this is honestly you wouldn't believe it I love it
2: that it means a lot like that blindsides me because like to know that I guess I am that now for some people would be is like pretty much job done for me like I to become an authority on that show that has meant so much to me is like really fulfilling that's right. it's really lovely to hear thank you
0: my bloody pleasure Uh, I've got a couple (laughs) more questions before we go
2: Sure, keep them coming Uh, man
0: we've talked about uh just then talked about the interviews and there was one that really stood out because it gained national press uh, and that was the one with Evangeline Lilly. Um, would you like to just sort of talk us through that and how that happened and what happened with that?
2: Sure. Yeah, it was um, mad. So basically, she, um, she was promoting Ant Man and the Wasp. Yeah. And I I got the interview because I kind of knew the person who was setting it up. Like they kind of approached and said, "Do you want to interview, Evangeline Lilly?" And I said, "Can we do a fifteen minute for?" The independent and a 15 minute for my loss podcast. Um, and I got greenlit somehow. I <laughs> yeah. Disney, and I was like, that's insane. I guess Disney own loss in a way. So maybe they were like, yeah, all right, whatever. So we did it and I kind of explained to her what was happening. And we, she was like, game. Um, and then I just kind of asked that, that question. I think it was, I can't remember what the question was it in particular? I think it was something like, do you regret anything? Is there anything I lost that you regret? And I was thinking more in terms of like her character, <laughs> like um, yeah. okay, not not really her personally. You know, it's mad, isn't it? Like the way you could word a question really impacts the answer you're given. And I, I could have made it so. I mean, that's a that's a mind screw when you think about it in terms of preparation. But yeah, I I never intended to get the answer that I got, and she just gave this really honest, you know, amazingly brave answer about um, feeling. Uh, like she was pressured into getting undressed essentially and while she was never nude and lost I think there were some scenes that required her to be you know semi-naked or whatever and she just wasn't comfortable and she said it it, it was such a bad experience that she it happened twice she said and it's such a bad experience that she she now refuses flat out to do it to do it again so the thing with the thing with when you get an answer when you get an answer like that you know it's big you know you're sitting on something quite big but it still doesn't necessarily like break through there are some times when i read interviews that just don't really or listen to it I don't really break through for whatever reason but i think the thing was i had the independent platform to push it out right. so i did an individual story citing the lost boys which you know is, is i guess it's it was quite cheeky it's got listen listens and stuff but it was technically like above board that was our time allotted for the lost boys and stuff so it was only fair to us that we did that and we, we would have covered it if it was another, um, like The Independent would have covered it if it was uh, another podcast. Um, so we did it and we, we put it out and the episode just really yeah rocketed and it was like obviously our most listened to episode, but it got picked up nationally and it was on Variety and it was on all the trades. It was on the Daily Mail, which, I'm, you know, not really my cup of tea, but like, you know, big. And um, yeah, and, and, and Good Morning America. And they were like, a last podcast. <laughs> or whatever i got it i got it like someone told me and i was like what did they say with jack and jacob because that'd be hysterical but i don't think they did and then um then it got all like the kind of the um responses where jj abrams kind of like apologized on behalf of the production and that's when i just got went a bit bit weird and it was like it was really like i didn't want to like Whilst I was really happy that really imagine felt she could talk talk about that now, and I'd obviously she obviously had it on her chest and and she was ready to talk about that. I think you know you could ask last year and she probably wouldn't have mentioned it. And the climate was you know is all even though it was kind of pre it predated I guess did it predate the, the 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 Me Too movement? I'm not really sure, but anyway, it, it was really I was really happy she felt on it, but the the thing that really bugged me was that it all came out on her birthday it was her birthday oh, when the story man. broke and i can imagine she well when it hit the i didn't realize but i saw that day it had been her birthday and i was like i hope she hasn't been like hassled too much um or, or, like bothered by this I would, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: you know um and like obviously when jj and other people get involved she might have an element of like feeling like a bit ungrateful or something because i don't think she was like criticizing them the production crew it was literally this director and she didn't name but if you do a bit of surmising I think you can kind of work out who sure. it was. um so that was when I kind of like phone off and was like oh my god that goodbye to any future JJ Abrams interview on this podcast day um but no I'm happy if that if that's the uh consequence and I'm happy because I'm just really happy that she felt she could say it. But what was really mad was like, like the other day as well like I read this um art twist Daily Beats article a report about um Essentially, the same thing happening to someone else um on the set of True Detective, and right down the bottom of the thing it had a link to my podcast referencing that story, or mine and Jack's podcast referencing that story, and that was like I was reading and I was like, it didn't re sync in initially, and I was like, wait, that was us, that was that was yeah. our podcast. So it's it's if it's a re- it's a reference point, and I think if you know if it inspired other people to come forward and stuff with their own experience, that's so much the better but yeah like that was our our one experience of getting national pickup and what was
0: it like in the in the fallout of that with you two did you um approach the podcast in the same way after that knowing that there's going to be this sort of interested audience that weren't there the week before sort of thing did you just uh carry on as you normally would
2: yeah i think um I don't, it's hard I, I think we really didn't want to like make it seem like we were like um
0: cashing in that sort of thing yeah. yeah I get that I think
2: there was there was a fear I think that's the good way of putting it there was a fear that we were like we did a special episode and stuff and like we were excited by the the, the amount of people we were getting because we knew that we'd probably have some people carrying on with us and that was fun to have people along for the ride but it wasn't like the the, the one reason we were we were happy or, or whatever. We we were just kind of overwhelmed that Evangeline Lily kind of chose. It's not she chose us, it's just that like we were there and she felt she be yeah. safe enough to say it. And I think that, that was it. So yeah, we then had a new, I, I think our listenership went up then, even like the, one, the previous ones and stuff. So it was good to have people along for the ride. I think there's been like quite a lot of lost podcasts in the past few years. that kind of like popped up um, around ours. But what I've noticed is that if one person listens to one podcast, Lost podcast, they listen to them all, and they just love Lost, and that's like a lot of that's a lot of time investing into listening to Lost podcast, and I've got a lot of love for all of those people. Really, I do.
0: Well, yeah, and as you say, people would have taken inspiration from that. So yeah, and it didn't come across like you guys were trying to cash in. It was That's just good. like one of these mad things that had happened. What what else would you do? Just stop the podcast because you don't want to be seen like that? No, I don't think so. And
2: also, just like you, you there was a question of whether whether should we should like actually include it or, and draw attention to it. But that would be the worst thing to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So like, and she when she was giving the answer, she wasn't like she wasn't emotional. She wasn't um, kind of she. She was like she'd moved past it, and she was like ready to kind of be like, well, wow, that. that was not good. Yeah. Um and there was like a sea of like a lot of like people, including some famous people, just going like tweeting, going respect Evangeline Lilly. So I think my unfounded worry that she was probably like, oh the that guy has really like screwed me over by like turning me into like national news. Of is probably like completely confounded by the fact that everyone's going, no, this is a great thing. And obviously me thinking that is a a pride thing because I don't want Evangeline Lilly to think badly of me (laughs) Um, as a fan (laughs) of (laughs) God who respects her work and loves her in general and still does. Um, Yeah, so there was a lot of fears going and and a lot of kind of like thinking, how do we deal with this? Um, Yeah, and Disney were a bit like, wait this was a podcast a lost podcast <laughs> you know didn't expect it to really become something
0: I'm gonna yeah. talk about uh, this thing that I loved I it was called chronologically lost Yeah. and a friend sent it over to me and said click this link you're gonna watch lost chronologically from day dot till end okay <laughs> didn't know what they meant by that and as soon as yeah. I played it my word it blew my mind um yeah do you know about it have you done this
2: I've not done it, and it's it's something I know about, and uh, a few people have mentioned it, and I think it's something that once this is out of the way, this podcast, I should probably do it. I think. Do you think?
0: A hundred percent. I think yeah. the only error with it is that uh, the music is tonally mm. a bit strange uh, because they're chopping from season to season and things like that. And yeah. it's like, oh, okay, I remember that. That's a, a bit of a weird uh, sort of key musical yeah. key but at the same time you know it's if you've already if this is your eighth time round
2: yeah why I not I think it's time to, exactly I think I've, I know it all too well in the order it was released why not switch it up a bit and do it in the corner I mean again it's one of the things like amazing that someone did it
0: <laughs> oh wow like,
2: yeah. how much I mean the effort that went into that is it's just next level insane isn't it
0: and, and and it is pretty popular. much perfect as well like the way that they've done it they've not made a misstep with the editing and things like that's that so.
2: okay. good like so that, whoever that is needs to be properly celebrated i think among the lost Fang fandom i'm sure they are but they need to be they need to become a name you know
0: well maybe they have to be quiet <laughs>
2: Who knows? well actually that's a point that's <laughs> a point i'd like to think that like david and carlton would like silently be applauding and going yeah and then like have like watched it as well or i like to think.
0: okay final question uh and it is important to us uh fans of your podcast so when this wraps up you're really close to the end now yeah where are you going to go from that or are you going to knock it on the head and say right this is done uh is there any way that you can go forward
2: it's mad to even be thinking about i mean it's, it's so funny because we we we've, we've taken like a like a hiatus as i'm sure a lot of people have noticed and we get messages all the time asking when we're going to come back and I, I got I get really stressed that people are gonna like just not stop listening because they're like a myth that we've taken a break but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of lot of reasons why we have waited one of which is um just I mean jack especially like just meant like had a bit of a crazy time of it the past year past half year um and we can't we wouldn't it wouldn't have been the best it could be and because it is the end, it's our last chance to make it the best it can be. And yeah. I think, and also season six is not an easy one. It's not something like the other ones are like, it's definitely my least favorite season, but there are moments of it that I really like. And, but I know it, I feel I know it the least. I have least connection to it. So it's going to be harder for me as a host, I think, steering things. So that, that yeah, that's not even the question you asked. The question is beyond that. So beyond that is, um is we've, we've spoken about what, what we could possibly do and there's been talk about doing another show or like another thing that Jack loves that I've not seen but the problem is I've seen bloody everything <laughs> um so that's impossible really uh I think the, the one show that would have been really good is if Jack was like a big Buffy fan because I watched Buffy for the first time last year and um that that would have been like probably got like the, like a good show to do sure yeah but, but i watched it in the end so i was like i'm not waiting for this i'm gonna just watch it and uh fringe is another one there's a guy who listens to us who um i call michael who uh emails me a lot because I I, I, I I like getting emails from listening it's just it's really nice just like speaking to fans and stuff about fans of the show not fans of us and um he's like fringe would be a great one to do but the, the problem with that is like it is the thought, the thought, of it, is is actually exhausting. <laughs> it's exhaust, It's actually exhausting. And me and Jack, Jack and I, we we he's he's back in London now.
3: This oh, is wow, news. Okay.
2: He's, he's new. It's news as of yesterday or two days ago. I got text. He's back in London. So I think the plan is to like meet. He he's the other side of bloody London, to which I am, which is really annoying. But the plan is to meet up and and like we'll first catch up as friends. And then, then get back doing like, in, like together watching loss, like the communal experience, as opposed to like going right. You ready? Press play. Three, two, one, go. Um, I was, I'm doing it over Zoom, but we will probably talk about the future. I, I think Jack and I, it's, it's fun to just like, just, yeah. I don't know. There's some. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm blowing orange trumpet, but like I think we are a good dynamic. And it would be a shame to like not do something creative together. We've always tried to like. Do, there's like other stuff we want to do, writing as well, things like that. But just so busy, man. You know, it's like that's the thing. Like it's it's so you've got to be like super passionate. about it. And and we were, I am about last, and he was about the podcast, which is why we've done it. But beyond that, it's it's hard for me to think that I would be passionate about something as much as Lost, unless it's like the Arctic Monkeys lyric explainer <laughs> or something, or, or like the Beatles albums or something. But TV-wise, it doesn't really get, get bigger than Lost for me. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's
0: really tricky. Like I was racking my head, like, maybe I could suggest something to you, and I thought, well, maybe, like, one One Week is a Film – that one of you loves and the other one's not seen. But, mm. uh, and you know, that could be endless then, and it could be whenever you guys do get together. But at the same time, like you say, you've done Lost, you know. where.
2: is a daddy of all. Really. Mad Men would have been a really good one if Jack hadn't, I've just assumed he hadn't watched it, which I don't blame him for. But, like, he, I, I know Mad Men pretty well, not as well as Lost. I know nothing as well as Lost. But, like, Mad Men would have been a goodie, I think um less of the mystery but more stuff you know interesting stuff to delve into nonetheless there is a podcast idea I had I was on holiday last week and I was on, on the beach and I was like huh! and I said it to my girlfriend and she was like it's a good idea and I would love to do that with Jack uh, really um but we'd like to get paid for this
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know what
2: I mean the, just, yeah, yeah I mean it's like yeah just doing this as well where people go when are you doing the next episode it's like look <laughs> we don't get paid a <laughs> penny for this uh so it'll, it'll be there when it's there
0: <laughs> well yeah whatever you do um thank you for for introducing me to to you two as a as a pair because as i say um before you guys podcasting was just is that what ricky gervais did you know, and now it's like, it's part of my life in a huge way. And it's down to you guys just pulling me in like that. So uh, oh, thank you.
2: Well, it's fantastic to hear that really. And thank you for just the, um, the yeah, just being there to listen and for uh, getting involved and for this and for making me feel very happy and fulfilled and <laughs> like it's all been worth it. You know what I mean? That's it's really lovely. It's really good. Thank you.
0: Take a Um, Thank you so much.
2: Take care, man.
0: A huge, huge thank you. To Jacob Stolworthy for coming onto the show for a chat about Lost. It's gonna be all downhill from here. Lost is just something so special to me. I'm sure you could hear how giddy I was during that conversation. Regardless of all that, we are still <laughs> we are still in Sci-Fi Corner um, up here amongst the stars. We don't like to talk about TV shows. You wouldn't believe it unless it's Lost, of course. Uh, and we definitely do not want to chat about horror movies. What we do here is we talk science fiction movies, we talk about fantasy movies, and 100% we talk nonsense. For 2004 in particular, we are talking about ridiculous future civilizations on far off worlds, wizards, ancient curses, natural disasters, time travel, time erasure, grave climbing... Helpful robots, naughty robots, there's even a comic book adaptation. My pet hate, it's all here, so please strap in as we visit Sci Fi Corner. Last month we visited 1982, of course it was ET, the extraterrestrial, that made my very top spot and I would imagine that everyone else that checked in would have thought that Blade Runner should have taken that number one position and probably they deleted the episode straight from their playlists. Fortunately, as I look at this list, I would only bin off one of these movies as the rest range from okay to incredible. And that first crappy movie, we're finally here. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Not well. Uh, The first crappy movie. It's called Izo. Izo? I don't know, but it is I-Z-O. This one, it's just all over the place. Takashi Miike has done it again. Tonally and visually, this one just gave me a bloody headache. And when I got to the end... I realised that I just did not care for anything that was going on in the story or anyone that was featured in the story. But that's the only one I really didn't like. From here on in, stuff starts off average but gets really good. So next up is The Stepford Wives. Unfortunately, it is a little bit flat and the only horror in this remake, it comes from the woeful representation of both women and men. I think where this one failed is that you have to have a believable baseline to make something like this work, surely. I will give it this though, several of the jokes almost landed. They almost landed, it was so close. Uh, But this has a decent cast, it was just wasted on a woeful script. Forget that though, because following The Stepford Wives, we have Will Smith in I, Robot. And there is something remarkably standoffish about this film. The story's fine. It is based, of course, off an Isaac Asimov story. But maybe it's Will Smith himself. I mean, I've not read the book, but the character he plays is so unlikable from the opening scenes that I just never get back on board. I just don't like that character. And the ending of this thing is so ridiculous. I was pretty grateful that I'd lost interest by that point anyway, or else I would have been gutted when he got there. Talking of ridiculous, next up is The Chronicles of Riddick
1: a plague that now sweeps through the worlds of man, leaving behind a trail of dead planets and towering icons, monuments to their unholy crusade. All those poets on all those worlds who spoke of war as such an unsightly thing, they never stood here
3: never fails to inspire, does it? Each time a world falls.
1: The Necromongers. A dark army that will convert or kill every last human life. Unless they can be stopped. But sometimes the only way to stop evil is not with good. You must confront it with another kind of evil. Who the hell are you?
3: Where does he come from? Who are his people? These are the things I need to know.
1: You remember your home world. Have you met any others? Others like yourself. It's not my fight.
3: Consider it a test. Convert now or fall forever.
1: Are you going to stop the monsters now?
6: I am the monster.
3: There you
0: go, that was a trailer for The Chronicles of Riddick. And let's be honest, there is some truly embarrassing CGI in this. It also throttles the viewer in the most ridiculous scenes, in the same way that Revenge of the Sith did, Attack of the Clones, those Transformer movie battles. It is a digital mess a lot of the time. Yeah, in fact, too much of the time, if I'm being honest. It's two hours and 15 minutes long. Didn't have to be. But... I think Riddick is a great character. It was really fun being in his company again, sort of, but also not sort of. Following this is Primer, which I reckon is a way, way overrated, low-budget time travel feature. That's all I'm going to say about it. Finally, with these below-average films, but still alright, we've got our first big hitter. It's Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. And that, of course, is the comic book adaptation I mentioned. I actually like it, but just not that much. So I'm going to move on. You all know Hellboy. So up next, where are we? We're at number eight. This one is called Survive Style 5. Now this one is a Japanese anthology film, but it's interwoven and spliced together rather than that one story neatly placed after another story. And it's sort of brilliant because of this. I never have time to think if one of these segments is better than the other. It is funny. It's an oddball one. It's really scary in all the right places as well. And also, I just want to add, this has Vinnie Jones. He makes this one a winner. Of course he does. More enjoyable than even that, though, is Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Even though this one does take place in a fantastical world and the story is ludicrous... It somehow feels like it's this dark family film, rather than something that we would chat about in Sci-Fi Corner. I will say though that Meryl Streep, she completely stole the film for me. She was just eccentrically awesome. And speaking of eccentricities, we have next Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I remember this being far darker when I watched it in the cinema, and it felt like the adult one of the series when I last watched it. But this time around... Just like Lemony Snicket's, it's just a rather top-notch fantasy for all the family to enjoy. Nothing wrong with that. And it really does deserve its fantasy tagline, so it should be in here. Okay, cool, cool. Number five, would you believe it? We've got Howl's Moving Castle.
1: From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki... The director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. That's
3: really me, isn't it?
1: An enchanted, moving castle.
3: This is a magic house.
1: And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, Journey... ...to amazing new worlds.
3: Find me in the future!
1: Aboard Howl's Moving Castle.
0: I think this one is considered the big hitter from the Studio Ghibli team... ...but it isn't considered the best. And if that's the case, then fair play. I have to agree. There is a ton of things to like about this movie. The animation style is flawless... The story is cute and the magic moments, they are plentiful. But I do prefer to watch Spirited Away. Well, yeah, I would. At number four, the brilliantly ridiculous The Day After Tomorrow. Now, this is, of course, an end of the world disaster movie. And it's the movie that could. It cost a ridiculous $115 million to produce. But it recouped over half a billion back in box office receipts all across the world it's utterly mad it is crazy to think that a mad film like this could do that with this one the ending finishes rather suddenly but it didn't hurt every other movie that came out in the 50s and if it's good enough for that decade then you know what it's good enough for me right now at number three we
3: have this we can never forget all i know is that by reading these journals i might be able to get kaylee back I'd think twice about what you're doing. You could wake up a lot more messed up than you are now.
1: I haven't seen myself like this before. But what if you could go back in time? You are completely relaxed. Think of it like a movie. You can pause, rewind, or slow down. Could you save the one person that mattered the most? Honey, are you all right?
3: You incredible i lost you once and i'm
5: not losing you again
3: i mean you never lost me what are you talking about
5: you've got nice life you stay away from us
0: <laughs> the butterfly effect now this one is again ridiculously of its time if you look at the poster you can see that the costumes in this and the music choices that feature in the film it is so early 2000s. And I wish I could do this for you, but I just can't articulate why I enjoy this one so much more than Primer. It must be something to do with the budget, because they follow very similar themes. It's just Primer left for me a little bit cold. It's usually the other way around, right? Those smaller passion projects, they usually win over me, but yeah, not this time. Uh, Eric Stoltz in this, he is great as the pedo dad. that's a weird sentence Uh, okay but yeah Aston Cusher he is in a leading role that isn't shit it's oddly alluring and on this recent rewatch I still had great fun with it the depressing tone of the film in the film's latter half it feels like a bold choice now knowing what else came out around this time yeah the butterfly effect is surprisingly good so, what could be better than Mr. Demi Moore making a TV screen wobble with his thoughts? Well, sitting neatly at number two, wishing it were as crazy, as sexy and as cool as it is in the first part of Quentin Tarantino's filmology-ology-ology, ology, it is Kill Bill 2. Now, I hear what you're saying, what is this doing in a sci-fi fantasy rundown? You may ask yourself, but I'm here to tell you. No! <laughs> just heard the clip where Uma Thurman is buried alive and she's clawing her way out of the coffin for a long time and the silly amount of earth that she has to go through is pure fantasy and I was hoping to discuss this with someone on the podcast <laughs> because I love this film so much but none of my guests chose it so I would have liked to have a row with them as to why I would have accepted this on the show but I couldn't and I would have really lost thinking about it now so in this circumstance yeah Oh yeah, I would have lost. But it doesn't matter because it wasn't my number one pick. My number one pick is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
1: Of course it is. Hello. I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna, Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Ah!
0: For my money, this was Michael Gondry's best film. A film that answers the question that nobody's ever asked. If you could wipe out all memories of a relationship that causes you untold pain, would you do it? Should you do it? I love the secondary roles in this. Uh, especially the young Elijah Wood as a scumbag who unethically takes advantage of his company's clients. But really, it is the double whammy of casting Kate Winslet seven years on from Titanic and Jim Carrey, who hasn't been as great as this since filming Eternal Sunshine. It's a casting masterstroke. Their on-screen chemistry is magical and I've yet to sit through one sitting of this and not cry. Every time breaks my heart and I'm not going to go into any detail because if you are yet to see this one you have to pop it at the top of your list you may only watch it once it may just be way too much of a bummer but honestly it's a killer change your heart
3: look around you Change your heart, it will astound you. Now, need your love like the sunshine, and everybody's got a ransom.
0: there you have it that is the best science fiction and fantasy films of 2004 what a ride it was all about lost though really wasn't it and that's not even a film what am i doing with this podcast i don't know i reckon we best get back to earth and hit those top 10 horror films right now i think i've made so many cuts in this one i've been coughing my guts up i feel really bad i think we're just gonna have to return return to earth let's get on with these top 10 horror films We need the gore, we need the terror, the evil, the horror. It's a totally relentless torture fest. I can't wait.